an honor to welcome all of you to Spirit Rock. Thank you for selling out this event about a month and a half ago. <laughs> Um, my name is Maria Cristina Tavera. I am the event coordinator for today's splendiferous event. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope you've enjoyed the turkeys. They're like in full force today. I haven't seen them like in such massive quantities. And um, there's no rain and it's lovely out and you're all here and the campus is yours today. So enjoy all the 400 acres. It's actually a pretty spectacular generous day. I'd like to thank um, Jesse, who's going to be on AV today, and Romy, who's out in the hall supporting, and Gabriella, and um, all of the volunteers, all the folks with these nifty purple name tags who have been here since last night, setting the room, getting ready for you, taking your offerings, giving you instructions, keeping the bathrooms clean. We literally cannot do anything without their generosity. We couldn't have sliding scale. We couldn't have scholarships. Um, I would be here alone. It would be a bummer. Um, so they not only entertain me, they're here to entertain you. Give them lots of love today. They're coming back tomorrow for David Rico with another 200 blessed souls. So be kind to them. Um, and uh, I thank you in advance for that. <sighs> Such a pleasure to welcome Tara Brock back four years later. We warmed up your seat for you a little bit. <laughs> Tara is um, a soul sister of Spirit Rock, let's just say. And we are so thrilled to have her here. Today is a benefit event. Uh, for Spirit Rock and uh, her Sangha Insight Meditation in Washington, D.C. So know that uh, today, all your offerings today are being split with them and you have all been very generous. So thank you very much. Is there anyone here who's meeting Tara for the first time? Okay. How many of you have heard her on podcast though? I'm just going to go over this because it's only right to let you know that Tara Brock is a PhD, internationally known meditation teacher and author of best-selling Radical Acceptance and True Refuge. And today we have Radical Compassion to, to fill out the trifecta. And you are able to purchase that beautiful book today at the bookstore out in the lobby. We're going to take your money in any way that you would like to offer it. Bring them for your friends. They're great Valentine's Day presents because who doesn't want Radical Compassion for Valentine's Day? I'm talking about. We don't share your email with her though, so if you want to hang out with her more, please make sure to sign up that sign up for her email list. And um, she's going to be speaking more today, and she's the only one going to be speaking today. And soon I'm going to get through this. How many of you are the f here for the first time? All right, my next messages are for you. The rest of you can start meditating a little bit because some of you have been here before. If you are taking CEs, and there are sixty of you taking CEs, you have already signed in and you've agreed that you're signing out at five o'clock, not before, because it's a Dharma center and we love those rules. So um, I'm going to meet you out in the lobby at five o'clock with all your good stuff. You're going to sign out and it's going to work. If you haven't signed in for CEs, you're getting up slowly now and you're going to go out there and do that. That's good. Um, you're going to get comfy. Yes. You're going to be mindful that we have uh, safety aisleways all around and that if you're in an aisle, someone can't get around you. So you're going to tuck in really, you're going to tuck in and make sure. We want you to be comfortable, but yeah, it's a sold out event. Um, we'll have this 
Uh, you can hear it out in the lobby, so if you want to get out in the lobby and take some space, that'll be great. You can do that as well. Assisted hearing devices on that back wall. They're going to make everything fabulous for you so you can hear it. The way Q&A works is you raise your hand, Tara points to you, a volunteer comes to you with the mic, you rock star this thing, it's your time, get it close like this. Hold the mic if you're in a, in a dialogue, so don't like get scared and then you know, hold on to it and then continue and then the, the runner will take the mic from you. Cell phones, don't we love them? Aren't they like our favorite thing? Not in the hall. We're not taping this. We're not recording. We're not taking a photograph with a human in it without asking them permission. The Buddhas and the Kuan Yins have given you permission. Knock yourselves out and tag us on your social media, telling everybody that you're having a fabulous time here. And the MC is outrageous and needs to stop talking. Yes to water, yes to snacks. Make sure it has a lid on that. These floors are really slickery. Um, lunchtime's going to be fun. There's a lot of you. All the chairs in this entire building are in this room. So, seriously, I sweated about this yesterday. So, are you ready for this? Even like old timers? We are opening the upper retreat dining hall and teacher's yurt, right? That was the right response. The teacher's yurt, which is the coolest thing ever because there's a running creek and there's a there's like a hot sweat lodge situation there. You're all welcome to use those spaces for your lunch, which means you are walking up past the Dharma gates, which I tell you all the time not to do. You're going to go have your very neat lunch, throwing it in the trash, not going into the kitchen. No. And you're not going into like the dorms or there's not a time to explore. You're exploring the land. Yeah? Cool. There's water up there. Uh, there's nothing else. I sell all the snacks and all the tea and all the stuff down here. Keep your tab current. So better you put the 20 in at the beginning of the day than at the end of the day. It just kind of looks better. Uh, bookstore. <laughs> bookstore has no tax. We will take everything. We don't want your first child, though. So credit card, check, cash. We're here to make some uh, things happen for you there. Have at it. Shop. Buy everything that you need in there. Thank you for supporting. The bell is your Pavlovian bell. When you hear the bell, come back home. Come back home. We're going to just call you Big Bell, Little Bell. So go up the hill, knock yourselves out. Uh, when Big Bell rings, you have about 10 minutes to come back into the hall to be on time. Um, two cool classes I do want to update you on, and the wall has lots of really neat things through April. In March, we have the very first time offering Connecting with Courage, Buddhist Practices for Exploring White Privilege with uh, JD, who is one of our fabulous new teachers about to graduate. And in April, we have the LGBTQI community comes together for a Dharma Day. Um, please help us spread the word that we have a very cool LGBTQI programming happening here and um, help us get all of the community together for that. Um, none of us would be here without the generosity of not only the volunteers, but many of you here who donate and donate regularly and donate your $25 a month and say, yay, thank you, Spirit Rock. Um, that is all run by a beautiful, beautiful development department. And I have the lovely Berkeley here who's going to tell you how you can support more of this programming on a regular. And thank you, and Tara, thank you very much. Thank you, Christina. 
Hi, my name is Berkeley Walker, and I work here at Spirit Rock, as Christina mentioned. And um, I just want to take a minute today to talk to you guys about giving. Um, here at Spirit Rock, we have a program, and it's called the Stewardship Circle. Some of you may know it, some of you may not. Um, it's a group of stewards who help take care of Spirit Rock by giving monthly $25 or more. Um, as many of you may know, Spirit Rock is a nonprofit organization, um, so every single thing you see around you and much of what you don't, it relies on the generosity of others. Um, here at Spirit Rock, we like to use a phrase, if it feels right, because truly transformational and powerful giving comes from an open heart that feels good about giving and what it's giving to. And in return, you would receive things, um, these really sweet Dharma offerings that help you stay connected to the Dharma and to your practice and to Spirit Rock. Things like Monday night live streams, um, other inspirational live streams and audio recordings and recipes, things like that. You would get a monthly email. Um, and so becoming a Stewardship Circle member is a way to support Spirit Rock in a truly foundational way. So, if it feels right, I'm going to be just outside those doors during the breaks. Um, there's going to be a morning break and then an afternoon lunch. And so if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. And you can also find us online or you can give us a call. Um, so yeah, just thank you so much for giving me a little bit of your time. And just want to wish you a wonderful day long with Tara and a wonderful weekend. Just taking a pause to take you all in. Um, thank you, Berkeley. Thank you, Christina. And thank you, Spirit Rock. I, it's such a um, it's such a pleasure for me to be back. You know, the Bay Area and Spirit Rock and you. And I've been looking around and seeing old friends and new friends, and also watched the turkeys for a while. And it's first of all, it's a major contrast. I've been doing a bit of book tour, so it was you know New York and. Washington and and the contrast is kind of uh, amazing. One of the uh, stories circling around Washington, D.C. is of these monks gathered in a demonstration on the Capitol Mall. And what they're saying is, what do we want? Mindfulness. When do we want it? Now, you know. (laughs) So so the urban energy, you know. And then, ah, spirit rock. (laughs) Yeah, so... Again, as I looked around, I saw some people I have known for decades and decades and decades, and others, uh, new friends, and uh, Christina asked a bit about who had, you know, this is the first time for many that were actually in person, and then when you raised your hand on the podcast, I thought, whoa, so they know every story, every joke, everything. (laughs) (laughs) And we can be here today, and what we're really here for... um, and I love this so much because it's really whatever the title is, who cares, we're here in some deep way to wake up together. And it's the together that really adds the, the sweetness. And so it makes me happy to do that. I do have a couple more questions for you. How many of you are pretty new to meditation? Can I just see by hands and don't be shy? One of my friends goes, oh, virgins, you know. So... <laughs> Another question for you. Um, How many of you are right now doing the Radical Compassion Challenge online? Oh, awesome. Awesome, awesome. Love it. Um, I'm not going to ask you how you like it right now. I'll give you the rest of the time for it. Um, 
How many of you are new or have not been exposed to the RAIN meditation, R-A-I-N meditation? So some, good. Because we'll be doing a, a much deeper dive. Another question, how many of you are um, either in this cohort or last cohort of MMTCP, the teacher training Jack and I are doing? Can I see by hands? Okay, great. That's really helpful. So the way I thought we'd do today, um, I find works the best, is I'll be giving little um, dharmet, you know, little mini-talks. <laughs> and, um, and then we'll do, be doing some reflections and, and some sharing. Um, the morning will really be taking rain, which is a weave of mindfulness and compassion, and applying it inwardly to places where we feel stuck. And so it's really an opportunity for you, no matter what you ever you thought you were coming for, to take somewhere that you feel there's something between you and really feeling free and exploring it. So that'll be the morning. In the afternoon, we'll be widening the circles. It still, might ha- it still has to do with blocks, but really in the relational field and opening up our hearts uh, in, in relationship with each other and the wider world. So that's the kind of the way we'll be, to, you know, going back and forth. And as I said, the main thing is uh, experiential. And so in that spirit, I thought we'd start, just take a, a, a short pause to arrive together. So you might, as you are already, putting things down and moving around so you can sit still. <laughs> the grounds of compassion is a mindful presence. So we really begin there. And the invitation is to bring your attention inwardly and notice how it is. This poem can help be part of that invitation. It's uh, by Martha Postlewaite. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life. Create a clearing in the dense forest of your life. inviting a settling and noticing if there's any part of your body that wants to let go a little right now.
to sense the possibility of taking a few more full breaths to gather and collect the attention. And with a kind of interest, with a kindness, Welcome all parts of yourself, whatever's here right now. If there's excitement or tiredness, anxiety or ease, tension, gratitude, just let it all belong, whatever's here. So there's an honest contacting with the experience of the moment and a letting be with kindness, with gentleness, with friendliness. And with that same curiosity and friendliness, just to widen the lens now and sense who's here. Sense your community, your sangha for today, with all the mix of different races, religions, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, class, abilities, and a sense this inclusive heart that truly welcomes all of us and senses our shared belonging. And it's from that, that welcoming heart space that I invite you to open your eyes and take a moment to uh, greet a few of the people around you, behind you, in front of you, to either side, bringing that presence to each other. Okay, thank you.
Okay, coming back into quietness again. We may have to do some Pavlovian work here with you guys. (laughs) So gong means... So it feels really... um, an important, poignant moment here as we are beginning 2020, beginning the decade in an election year and with a lot of craziness in our world to be pausing together and with the, the, with the intention of awakening caring. And it's, you know, there's staggering contrasts in our world, you know, in terms of the shadow and, and the waking up and, it's, and all the confusion of messages that are flying around when we try to read anything. One man uh, writes about his life in his hometown in Texas. He says, taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> And the other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth. And you should save it for someone you love. (laughs) So, so it is an amazing contrasting time. I mean, it's like our world always feels like it's desperately in need of our care. It always does. I mean, there have been many, many times that it's like humans have felt like, how could it be this bad? And... And I would say that a lot of, for a lot of us, our nervous systems are picking up that there is a spike in fear globally. Yeah, I'm seeing knots. And you can feel the tribalism that comes out. As soon as fear comes up, we get more divided and more us-themish. And so you can see it in the in tribalism and racism and violence. And, and in a way, the word that most strikes me is contempt that there's, there's such a, a loss of a sense of just our human value and there's a quality of contempt that's really, um, really grabs me. And the other thing that really grabs me is teen suicide. And um, it feels like the canary in the cage in a way. You know, it's like our teens who are so sensitive, 16 teens a day. So I bring that up with this like sobering thing that yes, there is a spike right now. Um, we're not talking about the long arc. That in some way we just take the next step, bow our head and you know pray. But there is a spike. And there's another kind of spike in an evolutionary sense which blows me away. It's the most amazing time at the juncture of human history in terms of consciousness. I mean, you can, in an airplane, the person next to you, if, if they don't meditate, their cousin or brother does. It's like everybody knows about meditation. Humans have hit that, that juncture where we realize that we can actually train our attention to change our, the structure and function of our brain and actually the experience of our heart and mind. So it's just the explosion and it's not it's not like oh you know that that was going to be last year's thing we know that this is going to keep on going that there's this waking up and it's happening everywhere in schools and medical schools and prisons and everywhere and next week we start um, 
I'm teaching with uh, two other friends. We're rotating teaching at the House of Representatives. Uh, you know, uh, we're doing a yeah, we're doing that, and 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 last year and the year before we. Um, taught at the Senate, which goes to say, um, <laughs> not sure how much it's helping. <laughs> but again, we need the long view on this, right? But the truth is, it's happening all over. I heard a story of two parents, and they were talking about their 20-something and kids, and one of them was saying, you know, how, well, her son wasn't employed, but at least he was meditating. And <laughs> And the other said, um, well, what is meditation? She goes, I don't know, but at least he's not sitting around doing nothing, you know. (laughs) So, and I suspect you're here because you can feel, as I do, that the medicine our world most needs is for people that can pause in the midst of reactivity instead of playing out the habitual, you know, react, fight, withdraw, be able to pause and deepen attention so we can respond from our intelligence and from our hearts as individuals and as a society. That that, this is the medicine that we need to transform consciousness. So I like using... uh, I, I like thinking in terms of evolution. I just find it one of the most useful metaphors. Everything's a metaphor when you're talking about spiritual stuff. But as metaphors go, it, it kind of shows our development, uh, the kind of shift from the prison of selfness, of I, me, my, to a sense of we. And um, we can sense each day how, you know, that the I is the tightness when we're self-focused and self-centered and it's not that it's bad to care about oneself we need to care about the life that's here but this isn't that the selfing is really about a kind of fear-based grasping or pushing away and it's so absorbed that we know we're most unhappy when we're selfing it's like this one guy in a bar who's saying you know I know that I'm nothing but I'm all that I can think about you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's that, that obsessiveness. And so in evolution, you, you can just see it. This, this shift from, in consciousness, this is constantly thinking through the day about what I need and what's going to go wrong for me and how I can get more comfortable to a sense of being part of a, a living web and what's going to really benefit all of us. And it's mirrored in the evolving brain that you can see how when there's a dominance of the reptilian brain and the limbic system that it's fight, flight, freeze. That's what we're doing. And when we enlarge and the frontal cortex kicks in in an integrated way, we shift from fight, flight, freeze to what's sometimes called attend and befriend. That is the shift. So you can see the trajectory as a species and then in our individual lives many parents are doing what they can to encourage the development towards a sense of we. Uh, one mother was uh, working on the generosity thing. She was making pancakes for her sons, uh, Kevin 5 and Ryan 3. And 
they started arguing, you know, me first, I want the first pancake and so on. And she saw the opportunity to have a moral lesson and she said, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And so Kevin turns to his younger brother and says, Ryan, you can have the first chance at playing Jesus. So we have this natural part of us that's going me, 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 me. And it's not bad, it's just natural. And it's from millions of years of our evolutionary experience in some way. And if we get arrested in it, if we don't keep waking up, um, what happens is that we start feeling really separate. I mean, that's the sign. The more that we're grasping and defending, the more separate we feel. You know, I'm thinking Mother Teresa had a beautiful way of putting it. She said that um, if we're suffering, it's because we have forgotten our belonging. And, and I love that language of it, that, you know, if we're suffering, we've forgotten our belonging. And, um, you know, I, I often reflect on the, this kind of teaching that came through a palliative caregiver who described the greatest regret of the dying. And this was after being with thousands and thousands of people dying. And it was, I didn't live true to myself. You know, I lived according to the expectations of others. I lived according to my own judgments and fears. And there's this sense of um, being caught in that separateness because we're not living true to our hearts. We're caught, we're, we're, we're living from the more primitive brain, me, 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 but not really true to our true nature, which is more the way I would put it. And what hit me when I heard that first was that's not just the regret of the dying. I sense an undercurrent with so many of us that every day we're sense, we can feel this, we're monitoring, we can sense this gap between the potential to be spontaneous and be authentic and love without holding back. You know, we can sense that possibility and every day we sense how we get small. Do you know what I mean? Like the kind of small-mindedness. And so um, I think that there's a kind of undercurrent that we get disappointed in our lives, that, are, that we're not really embodying love, which would be the way I would put it, but there's many lang- ways of languaging it. So it's that disappointment, and that's just one word for it, but that's, you might say also, just that sense of the possibility and not inhabiting it that brings us to a spiritual path. That in some, something in us just intuits that there's more freedom, that there's more capacity to, um, you know, to live our moments, to really be here for our life. And that draws us on. And the more we trust in the goodness and in that love and awareness, actually the more energized we get by our path. So I put trust right at the center of things. The more you trust your essential goodness, the more you trust the awareness and love that actually brings you to the path, the more actually it energizes things. So I'd like to, um, with that in mind, 
uh, do a reflection, an opening reflection for the day and um, just take some moments to tune in again. So this means, as you did before, to kind of put down things and let's let our attention come inward. So sitting comfortably, allow your attention to rest in the breath for a few moments and know that you're here, that quality of hereness right here. And now scanning your life, bring to mind some perhaps recurring situation where you react in ways that you regret or feel disappointed in. Uh, Somehow or other your reaction doesn't match what you sense is your potential. It might be a situation in a relationship where you get angry or judgmental or withdraw, or defensive. Some place where you react. Some place where you feel like you'd like to have more awareness and freedom. Does anyone need more time to locate a reactive situation? Just so you know, there's pretty much universal that you found them very quickly. So as if you're watching a movie, just take the situation that most exemplifies it in your mind right now. And let it unfold so you get to the frame where you're stuck, where you get emotionally stuck or triggered. Let yourself feel in the thick of it, you know, experience what's happening inside you, maybe what you're believing, how you're feeling, what you're inclined to say or do. And now freeze the frame 
really pause and imagine that you could keep the frame frozen but that you could step away, that you could for the time being be transported to a, a very peaceful, safe space. And you might take a few full breaths as you do that. And you might sense in this space that you're about to meet a being who's very wise, very filled with compassion. And it might be your own high self, what I sometimes call your future self, or who's emerging. It might be a well-known spiritual figure like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Dalai Lama, or it might be a formless kind of spiritual entity, or it might be someone you know personally, a grandmother, a child, a dog, but just sense who's here, who wants to emerge. This being wants to help you get in touch with your own heart, with your own wisdom, and it's going to take over for a while. So just allow that being to completely inhabit your body, their energy, their clarity, their kindness enters. And that with their wisdom and compassion you can deepen your sense to whatever's going on inside of you, whatever the reactivity was, and just notice how with this being's wisdom and kindness you're relating to your own reactivity. You're looking through those eyes, those lucidity, the eyes with lucidity and feeling with the heart of tenderness what's going on inside you. Just notice what shifts as you experience that presence of that being more and more in a cellular way. And as you take in the situation, sense your deepest intention with the wisdom and presence of this being filling you. What's your deepest intention for what might unfold? And then sense what's possible. How, with the presence of this being, what kind of response can occur. You 
you might sense yourself transported back into the situation so you're, you're navigating and responding with the resourcefulness of this wise, loving quality of being. And you might imagine that you're switching, so you're really inhabiting yourself right now, fully, right here, your heart, your senses. And now listen, because this being is going to whisper in your ears words of advice, a reminder, a message, something valuable for you to remember. And you might imagine how in the days and months to come when this situation arises that you can pause, remember what matters, that you can have increased access to the wisdom of your heart. taking a few full breaths and then as you're ready opening your eyes coming back okay so let me ask you a few questions and um, for for some of this rather than using the mic I'm just going to ask you to speak really loudly and we may have to have have a few people help repeat it, but just to hear what's in the room. The first is, who appeared for you? And just raise your hand and I'll point and then just speak loudly. Who appeared? Yeah. Uh, my first meditation, first meditation teacher. Beautiful. Who else? Yeah. My Qigong your Qigong teacher. Neem Karoli Baba. Baba. Yeah. Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg. I'm sorry? Adi? Oh, Adi Dafrijan? Yeah, 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 blessings. That's very cool. Yeah. Dalai Lama? Nelson Mandela. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I did. I'm glad I was there. <laughs> yeah. Your dog. How, let me ask you this. How many of you, your dog appeared? I meant to mention that dogs are incredible. How many of you found that it was some version of your most awake high self? Can I see by hand? A lot. So here's the thing. Well, wait a minute, before I say the thing, (laughs) while you're all leaning forward, yes, so what's the meaning of all this? (laughs) 
What I'd like to do is, and we will need the mics for this, is just maybe have five or so people share a message because, I mean, I could spend the rest of the day hearing your messages because they're so beautiful. But just to hear what was in the room, what, what did you hear when uh, you invited that wise being to, when that, to offer a message? Please raise your hands and let's hear. And remember to put the mic right by your mouth. Yeah, okay. Take care of your fear. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. I'm in charge of of me. Yep. Okay. Right over there. I know you're trying to get the mic to people. Yeah. Look with more compassion. Live with more compassion. Thank you. Right over here. Embody love. Embody love. Over back there, yeah. Just to slow things down. Just slowing it all down so that I go deep in myself. Sacred pause, beautiful, yeah. Um, Over there. You might keep your arm up because he can't tell that your arm's up. (laughs) You will never be truly alone. Oh, you will never be truly alone. We'll take one more right over there. Yeah, keep your hand up. Listen. Listen. That's a nice place to stop. Listen. But do you know what I mean? It's so beautiful. It's almost like that's a meditation, hearing the wisdom voice. So now here's the thing, (laughs) which is no matter who we think we're calling on, you wouldn't be able to contact that wisdom and love unless it was inside you, right? I mean, you have to already have it inside you. It's a very skillful and beautiful pathway to bring to mind awakened beings because it helps us to get in touch with that awakeness, uh, that, that beauty, that wisdom inside ourselves. One of the stories that over the years has most kind of called me back over and over again I'm suspecting many of you are familiar with and I want to bring it in so that we can keep coming back to it as a motif and that is this you know fantastically large and popular statue in Southeast Asia that uh, people loved not because it was beautiful it was not particularly handsome but it endured over the centuries and in the 1950s, these big cracks appeared in it. And so some enterprising monks shined a flashlight in and what came back was the gleam of gold. And so they ended up taking off what turned out to be a plaster clay covering and found it was the largest solid gold statue of the Buddha in all of Southeast Asia. And the monks believed that it had been covered over in difficult times when there was a um, an attacking army that in fact, as historians are put now, have found the temples were attacked, all the monks were killed, but the Buddha that was covered over in disguise survived. And the monks believe that much in the same way, we cover over our innate purity. We cover over the gold, the awareness and love that's here to help us protect and navigate through difficult times. And then, you know, we build whatever defenses and aggressions 
our organism feels like it needs. We end up blaming ourselves for it, but it's really, we're trying to make it through difficult families, difficult cultures, difficult times. And the suffering comes when we get identified with the coverings, we get identified with our ego strategies, our personalities, and we forget the gold. And for me, the, the whole of the spiritual path, in some, it feels kind of like an elegant and simple way, can be understood as learning to remember and trust and live from the gold. And that doesn't mean we get rid of the coverings. I, I kind of think of it more like they get a little more transparent, so the gold shines through. And the cool thing is that when we really start awakening to and trusting the gold that's here, then we see past the masks that others are wearing and really sense who's looking through, that we're with another and we can sense that that which is listening and looking back at us is the same consciousness, the same wakefulness, the same tenderness as that which is looking out through our eyes. That's the we, okay? So the practice of RAIN, of taking a stuck place and bringing mindfulness and compassion to it, is actually a way of revealing the gold. It reveals our intrinsic awareness and our intrinsic compassion. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to be, we'll be doing a dive into RAIN and exploring how we can bring it to ourselves and each other. I can say that um, the acronym itself, R-A-I-N, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And so recognize means we just recognize whatever is predominant in the moment. We allow it to be there. We investigate, and as we're going to explore together, the investigation is primarily in our bodies. It's not a mental kind of uh, analytic thing. And that's really important to remember. So we investigate, and mostly it's as, you know, as they say, the issues are in their tissues. You know, we're really coming to where it's living in our bodies. And then we learn to nurture. And there are a lot of different ways of investigating, a lot of ways of nurturing. We'll look into that. The last part of RAIN is what I call after the RAIN, quote-unquote. And people skip over it, but that's really when we can most sense the gold. Because in after the RAIN, we pause and we sense the quality of presence that's opened up. And you can start sensing the difference between the self that was identified with the coverings and this kind of space of awareness and kindness that has the luminosity of the gold. So I've been teaching RAIN, uh, and there's been some shift in, the, in how the last letter went, and we can go into that another time, but for maybe about 15 years, and I get a lot of communications coming my way, and more than any other communication, it's that in some way RAIN saved my life. And I didn't decide to write a book on RAIN, because Radical Compassion is, is a guidebook to RAIN. I didn't decide to do it until um, after my mother had come to live with me. She was 82, and um, so she came to live with my husband and I, Jonathan and I, and me. And 
it was one of those super busy times in my life, which I now have come to see is pretty much straight, well, always like, I always think it's like that, you know. But um, felt that way in particular. And so I got really caught in a kind of a stress of feeling anxious about letting her down because she needed really, I didn't want her to be lonely, but also anxious about getting things done you know, that would then allow me to feel like I was doing my job and not going to let other people down. And it was a squeeze. And I remember one day in particular uh, working on my computer and I was actually writing a talk on loving kindness. <laughs> Things are like that, you know. And then she came, she came into the office to show me a, a copy of The New Yorker. She thought an article I'd like. And I barely looked away from the computer. I was so, you know, immersed. And she was very gracious. She put the put it down and kind of tiptoed away. But I watched her retreating form, and I got one of those pangs of, you know, she's 82. I don't know how how much longer she's going to be around. So I did rain. I just paused and I just sat down in my office and R recognized anxious. Okay, anxious about getting things done. That was where I started. A allow, and that just means. Don't try to get rid of it, don't judge it, don't ignore it, just let it be, allow. And for me sometimes with allow I just say, this belongs, it's, this is a wave in the ocean right now. Allow. Then I, would, then I started investigating, I could feel the kind of twist and squeeze in my heart, you know, that was anxious. And as I started to investigate, I kind of asked myself what I was believing, and it was going to fail on all fronts, with you know. And um, and then I could feel the the twist, the squeeze even more so, and I was breathing with it. And I often put my hand right where I feel the feelings to help investigate, which actually starts to nurture. Because when you start, if you gently put your hand on your body, and there's some intention of interest and care, the nurturing starts coming in. So I was breathing with it and feeling it, and then I asked myself, and this is a question for investigating, so what does this place most need? And in a way, what it most needed was to trust the goal, to trust I love my mother, to trust I love this dharma, it's going to happen as it happens, I can trust the goodness of it. It had to do with trust. So I sent that message to myself and felt a lot more space. Over the next months, I did this many, many times. And sometimes it could be in a minute, because you can, once you get the sequence, and it becomes just a very quick remembrance. And sometimes it would take longer when it was more tangly, whatever. But the after the rain, what I felt each time was the shift from being this anxious, busy self to a sense of resting and a spaciousness and a kindness that was more the truth of who I was than any of my narratives. So what happened with my mom, I just, we'd go on our walks on the river and I would feel no urgency to get back. We'd be having our big salads for dinner and I wasn't trying to race up to my computer or we'd be on errands or something and I'd just be with her. And when she died, which wasn't that many years later, I'd say maybe three years later, four years later, the grief was, you know, horrific, and there wasn't the kind of regret that is so painful. And what I realized is that rain had saved my life moments with my mother. 
And um, that was kind of part of uh, what got me really going on writing Radical Compassion because it seems so clear to me the value, the very hands-on value and I wanted to share it. When we're in trance, and I call it a trance, we're identified with the coverings. We're just forgetting and we forget, all of us. You look at any day, you can watch how the, the mind drifts into the future and the past and all the worries and the planning and there's a forgetting. And so we all need ways to come home. Now one of the deepest ways of forgetting that we're gonna, I'm going to invite you to explore is when we're identified with the coverings and the main narrative of the covering is in some way I'm falling short. It's what um, in radical acceptance I call the trance of unworthiness. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, the trance of unworthiness? Okay, so here's... I mean, I remember after I wrote the book, um, I went on book tour and I went to Nairopa, which is a, a Buddhist university, and uh, they had a big poster with my face on it and announcing the, announcing the workshop. And the, uh, what was on the bottom in big print was, something is wrong with me. <laughs> thought, what a welcome, you know. It's like, walked in there and said, okay, me, wrong, bad. But that, that was basic. The message is so much how many moments, um, and this is why I call it a trance, that we're not aware of being down on ourselves. I mean, how many of you know you judge yourself too much? Can I see by hands? Okay, so that's, that's pretty much all of us, and some of us raise both hands, and... <laughs> pick up legs and so on. So we know that. But here's why it's a trance. We're not aware of its impact moment to moment. So we can be in a gathering like this with many like-minded beings, but there can be so easily that sense of feeling marginalized or different. And it comes out at lunch, like we're in junior high school, when the feeling of, you know, in some way the tension around, am I really going to be liked? Um, we're not aware of how it affects intimate relationships, how, how in a very deep way it's hard to feel really close because there's that, that ongoing circling in the mind and feeling in the body of, if they really knew me, there's just some flawedness that would not be acceptable. It's very hard to be creative at work or take risks because we don't trust. It's real deep mistrust. It keeps us from enjoying moments. And I'll never forget, and one of the first times I, I was sharing about this, one woman shared about her mother right before she died, came out of a coma and looked at her, and she said, you know, all my life I thought there was something wrong with me. And that was the last thing she said. She went back into a coma and she died. And for my friend, it was part of her waking up from trance to realize how many life moments have in some way we've been imprisoned in the covering, you know, and forgotten the gold. We've been imprisoned in the covering where the narrative is, I need to be different, I need to be better, something's wrong. And what does that deprive us of? So, 
it becomes really valuable to start looking at how we fuel that trance. Because when we think something's wrong, and then we try to compensate. And it's like riding a bicycle, you know, the more, the, the more stressed we are, the faster we pedal away from presence. And we do it in many, many ways. Um, one of the big ways is that we uh, strive to accomplish and to prove ourselves. And it's not just a, a kind of creative kind of accomplishment, it's trying to, in some way, um, it, we stay busy and try to impress. And uh, this gets carried over into spiritual life where we can easily be very uh, tense about progress. I know for myself, um, I lived in a ashram for a spiritual community for 11 years. I wore garb and we got up. This was a very disciplined ashram. We'd get up at 4.30 in the morning and do two and a half hours of sadhana or practice and so on. And I would get up at 3.30 in the morning so I had an extra hour to practice because I had some idea that it would take eight years to be enlightened and if I worked extra hard. <laughs> anyway, this was, I don't know where I got that. And then I'd go to different spiritual teachers and I'd ask them. I'd say, you know, so what else can I do? And to a T, every one of them would look at me and catch on and say, just relax, you know. And then I'd go, okay, just relax. And that that would become my next practice, you know, in some way. So So one of our ways of sustaining the trance is our addiction, and these are addictions, to proving ourselves and accomplishing more and, and trying to get somewhere. And then there are the kind of addictions that have to do with numbing ourselves or with food or drugs or changing how we're experiencing the moment by using substances or by the, way, or by the activities we're doing. It's another way of bicycling away from presence. You know, there are two industries that use the word users to describe their customers. <laughs> Do you know what they are? <laughs> Computers and drugs. Our relationship with technology and with our, you know, tablets and so on is addictive for most of us or many of us. I mean, how many times do we go online and look at emails when we really don't have to for any good reason? And isn't that bicycling away from the present moment? And what would happen if we actually started feeling what's going on in those moments? So that's another way. I'm just naming the addictions. Um, We have an addiction to presenting ourselves so we look good. It's like we all want to be loved and seen And when we didn't get loved and seen, then we present the person that we think will be lovable and a good person to look at. And it's interesting to track when you're with other people how much you're presenting something for the sake of the response versus just a natural expression. For uh, one story in a supermarket, a guy comes up to a young man and says, I want a half a head of lettuce. And he said, I don't think we do that, but I'll go ask the manager. He goes back to the produce area and the produce room and he tells his manager, it's a jerk out. There's a jerk back there that wants a half a head of lettuce. 
But then he looks over his shoulder and the guy's standing there. He said, and this fine gentleman has offered to buy the other half, you know. <laughs> Later on in the day, the manager comes up to him and, you know, I like, I like a young man who can think on his feet. Where do you come from, son? And he said, well, I come from Canada. He goes, well, how come you left? And he said, oh, all there are in Canada, whores and hockey players, you know. And the manager froze and he said, well, my wife is from Canada. <laughs> oh, what team did she play on? <laughs> you get the idea, though. It's just in some way we're presenting a self that'll be appealing to others. And so that's another of our strategies. A huge strategy, and we're going to go into this more this afternoon is aggression, blaming others, judging, putting others down. It can be direct or indirect. And then the most basic is when that aggression is turned on ourselves, which takes us full circle around to when we um, are in that trance of unworthiness, we judge ourselves over and over again and perpetuate the feelings of something's wrong with me. Identified with the coverings. So... The practice of RAIN, and we're going to spend the rest of the day now on bringing the practice to where we get caught in a small identity, is designed to remind us of the gold. Or you might imagine that because our, our early life is difficult and because of our societies we put on a spacesuit. That's another way to think of it, to navigate. And then we think we're the spacesuit and we forget who's looking through. So how do we remember? And rain, each step of rain helps us to wake up out of the coverings and the mask and recognize a much more true sense of who we are. I was asked, uh, I was doing an interview yesterday and I was asked for a favorite quote and what it meant to me. And uh, I told my sister that that was the question. And she said, oh, I know the quote that you like best. (laughs) And she was right. (laughs) Which is kind of amazing when you think about it. So thank you. (laughs) Um, And it's Srinur Sargadatta who writes that love love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. In the deepest way, this is the gift of training our attention, of learning to bring a mindful and kind presence to the moment, is that it reveals that we're nothing, we're no thing, we're not that narrative, we're not that limiting story, we're not that familiar feeling of anxiety, that that can't possibly define this mysterious being. We're no thing. And as we deepen our attention, what we discover in After the Rain is a space of kindness, of compassion, that we're everything, that, that when we're in that formless space, all of life is part of our heart, that we belong that we're everything.
So that's the realization, and those are words until you've actually entered the process. So I want to enter the process, and I thought we'd do it... Um, let me see how we're doing time-wise. I thought we'd do it in two parts this morning. We'll start with the recognize and allow part, and then we'll add on the full, the full reign. And the reason I like to do it that way is because for you who have practiced uh, mindfulness and vipassana and so on, recognize and allow is the ground of mindful awareness, right? Being mindful means you're recognizing and allowing without judgment exactly what's unfolding in the present moment-to-moment experience. So the ground of the reign of compassion is really recognize and allow. It's mindful. And there are many uh, tricks to relaxing the judgment and to contacting what's here. Um, The most basic you know, for me, one of my wake-ups in doing mindfulness and this recognizing and allowing of rain was at uh, one of my earliest retreats at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society. And I was in the process of getting divorced, and I went to uh, this, I think it was like a month long or whatever it was, retreat, and um, I started in with a sinus infection and I was anxious about the divorce and feeling guilt and all sorts of stuff for my son and so a lot was going on and so when I started sitting everything that was coming up was aversive it was don't like these aches and feelings in my body don't like this thing going on in my life don't like the window wars that happened at IMS because it was cold and some yogis like the windows open and some like them closed so I didn't like that and then, and then my list went on. And then I realized, wow, okay, so I'm pretty, you know, tensed against a lot. So what I did was I started what I have now come to call a yes meditation, which is really recognize and allow, where I just name what was happening and I'd say yes to it. Now, yes did not mean I liked it. It didn't mean I wanted to go on forever. Um, didn't make me passive. It was just this honest acknowledgement of, yes, this is the reality of this moment. This belongs. Okay? So I would do, I would feel the kind of congestion and ache, and I'd go, yes. And just, then I'd hear the sound of a teacher guiding a meditation, but talking through everything, not giving any space. Yes to the irritation. You know. <laughs> And it went on and on. And at first it was like I was just slapping on yes. And it was kind of entertaining. It was something to do, so to speak. Then I noticed that I would say yes, and there would be a little bit of of space. It was was kind of humorous. Like, you know, it was kind of entertaining. And gradually more and more I sensed the space. Every time I'd say yes, rather than resisting what was happening, there was just more space until what really filled that space was more of a quality of tender presence. Recognizing, just naming what's happening and letting it belong there. And there was just a lot more presence. Viktor Frankl has another one of the kind of of quotes that I always remember, which is, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is your power and your freedom. When we can simply recognize and say, yes, there is a space of presence that opens up, 
we still may have the feelings of discomfort or pain or hurt or anger or whatever, but there's just more space for it. The who we are has relaxed open. There's a shift in identity. So that is the beginning of rain. And sometimes, when you recognize and allow, you don't even need to do the rest of rain because you've already opened up enough for whatever's going on to come and go and you're resting in a larger sense of being. So with that, I'd like to, um, before the break, have us practice uh, recognizing and allowing together and then we'll uh, move around and take a break and then come back. So if you will, just again, find a way to sit that works for you. One of the useful things about yes is that, in contrast, when we're stuck, when we're living in a small self-identity, we're saying no. On some level, our body and our mind are resisting the reality of the moment. In fact, any time you're stuck, if you scan, you can start noticing that it's resistance. I remember leaving that retreat that I'm sharing with you about and my takeaway was that the boundary to what we accept is the boundary to our freedom. So it gets very interesting to notice resisting and then allowing. And in that spirit I'd like to invite you to scan your life And we'll be doing this number of rounds today, but just bring to mind now a situation again that in some way elicits some reactivity that you'd like to have more freedom around. And I'd like to invite you not to pick something traumatic or super intense because it won't be as valuable. We're just doing the recognizing and allowing portion, which means that you'll have a harder time getting a feeling for it if it's a super distressful experience. So it might be some power struggle with child, maybe something at work where you get irritated, where somebody's not doing their part, or with your partner, if your partner's not doing their share, disagreement, It may be some behavior of yours that you're just reacting to as you see it. Maybe a health situation and you're reacting in a way you wish you would. And as you did before, as you 
come to a, a situation, you know, clo- hone in on the circumstances that uh, would bring this up. And feel the reaction that comes up, how you're reacting. And first just scan and become familiar with and aware of the resistance, the no, that this shouldn't be happening. It's a basic stance that this shouldn't be happening. Something's either wrong with me or you or life. attitude of no or resistance is something's wrong with this. It's bad. And feel how that is shaping your body, your mind. This kind of no. You might even mentally say the word no, just to kind of get in touch with how resistance is. And, and notice the familiarity of it. I don't like this. You might sense how your life would be if whenever this came up you went into this kind of no, this resistance, just how much deeply grooved the pattern would be. No to the unpleasantness of fear or anger or hurt or sadness. Take a few full breaths now. And again, take some moments to sense the realness of this difficulty and what's triggering you. This time, as you feel it, explore what would happen if you shifted that attitude of resistance and instead just said yes to whatever you're aware of that's coming up. Now, keep in mind, you're not saying yes to another person or what they're doing. You're saying yes to the feelings that are coming up in you. And there's a really big difference. This isn't being passive to others. This is opening to the actuality of your own experience with honesty. If it's anger, say yes to the feelings of anger. If it's fear, say yes to the fear. If it's hurt, say yes to the hurt. And if the word yes doesn't work for you, you might sense, okay, this belongs. This is just a natural arising in this human body-mind. It's a wave in the ocean. naming what's going on and in some form allowing it. Some people like to bow. It's like, okay, this is reality right now. Let reality be. It's okay. And if you are 
feeling tired or you've disconnected from a situation and your mind's wandering and your body's kind of feeling disconnected, then say yes to that. Because the yes meditation goes with whatever is here. You can keep on widening and saying it's okay to whatever is going on. Notice what happens. What's it like in your heart when you say this belongs to whatever emotion's there? What happens in your mind, your body, your spirit? Keep in mind that if you're feeling a sense of shame or insufficiency, you're not saying, yes, it's true, I'm deficient. You're saying yes to the feeling of it. So you're not agreeing with a limiting belief. You're just having the courage and honesty to contact and agree to feel what's here in the body. said that when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone. But not right away. It can take a while to keep deepening the yes, the surrender to the reality of the moment. These last few moments See what happens if you deepen the yes, like truly intend to allow the life that's right here, a surrendering presence. And you might imagine in the days and weeks to come, when this situation comes up, what would happen if you noticed the no, the resistance, and made room for the life that was here? This belongs. Yes. What new possibilities might this open up? So we're going to um, open it to just a few questions, and then we're going to go on break. And if you're, um, and if you'd like to 
quietly start your break right now and not stay around for questions, that's quite fine. There's a large number of us and the bathrooms are limited, so um, this could be a really good way to collaborate. (laughs) Um, But I want to ask you a few questions about this and then open it to your questions. And one is, how many of you, when you um, said yes to the experience there, found that there was more space? Okay. Here's another question. How many of you, when you said yes to an emotion, found that it got more intense? Yeah. There's, by the way, there's not a right or wrong way to have this happen. Let me see those hands again. Yeah. You know, if I say yes to sadness, often I find that I get, it gets even more poignant. Or if I say yes to fear, sometimes it's like it gives it permission to be bigger. Yes doesn't mean things get less intense. Um, one way to think about it is that every emotion has a vector. It goes, rises and it falls. According to neuroscience, it takes about 1.5 minutes to do that unless you're thinking a lot. And if you're thinking a lot, you'll keep on fueling it. Okay? But if you just let it be there and say yes, it may get stronger. But it gets stronger because like a wave, it, it has that sign function. Okay? Now, sometimes, some of you might have found that when you said, yes, it felt like it was going to be too much. And you don't have to do a hand raise on this, but I want to name that the reason I suggested not trauma, not something too intense, is because when there's a lot of trauma or too much intensity, this ground of mindfulness can actually open us to be re-traumatized. And I want to say this right now as as a part of our day, that there are many of us that have um, streams of trauma in our nervous system, many of us. And so that if you find that something, I invite you to do something and to get in touch and feel it in your body and let it be all that it is, and you intuit that that would really, you wouldn't have the tolerance or the, the space for that, don't follow that, those instructions. When there's trauma, really what we need to do is whatever practice helps to calm the nervous system, really calm the sympathetic nervous system, and usually those practices have to do with love and safety, wherever we feel safe, with whoever we feel safe, whatever helps us feel more safe. And so if you, you know for yourself, and I really want to entrust you to take good care, that there are places feels, that feel edgy, um, preset for yourself a way back home again. You might have a way, like with the metta meditation, of just putting your hand on your heart and saying, it's okay, sweetheart, or, or relax, breathe, you're going to be okay. Whatever your way is, that's the end of rain, nurture. Nurturing can be done before rain, during rain, after rain, at any moment that we feel we need more space, okay? So this is recognize and allow. And for some of you, you might have found that you chose something really charged and it was still really charged and you need the investigate and nurture part of RAIN too. But I want to pause here. I see what questions might be in the room or what's sharing and what you notice between uh, yes and no. So again, our mics have, uh, our mic runners have the mic and I see a hand right up here, right here. You pass the mic into this person. Um, 
I noticed that it's been hard for me to find something that's not trauma-based right now because I'm having to get off of a medication that I was on for six years, um, slightly against my choosing. And so everything feels like trauma right now, and that's hard to know how to access anything else. Thank you for that, sweetie. That, thank you. And, and just to know, first of all, you're not alone. You know, I don't do hand raises on it because it's not it wouldn't be appropriate. But there are some people that any situation, all pathways lead to some very car raw feeling. And if that's the case, use today to deepen your pathways of self nurture. Okay, and just explore it with whatever we're doing. Explore what it means in that particular circumstance to nurture, and you will come away. You know, they say that whatever you practice grows stronger. And if you spend the day practicing nurturing yourself, calling on nurturing, um, it will help your nervous system right now. So thank you very much for being a voice for others. Yeah. Anyone else? Questions over here? Hi, Tara. Um, I brought up an issue that's come up for me as a parent, as a mother. I, um, I think I hold myself to too high of a standard and want perfectionism from myself. And one of the things that I've had so much doubt around is screen time with my children, and especially my son, how much he wants to sit and watch his cartoons and just zone out. And the guilt... I feel that comes up for me the shame I feel as a parent because there's a lot of messages in our media that that's not healthy for his mind and um, and I I just I just worry that I that's what came up for me it just too much there was it opened up to how much shame and guilt I feel and it's hard for me to allow it because um, it just doesn't feel... Maybe it's not the right thing to allow. Does that make sense? So, allowing doesn't have to do with how you um, behave with your son. The allowing has to do with the shame and the guilt. Right. right. And it's fine and good to allow yourself to feel that in your body. You're not believing the message of it. So, in other words, allowing doesn't mean you're saying, it's true, I should feel bad. I'm failing. It's, mm-hmm. That's not what allow. That's not what yes and allowing is. Allowing is acknowledging. Wow, there's a lot of shame and guilt. Just the way you're doing now, you are allowing by just naming it mm-hmm. that that's really happening in your body mind. And what that tells me is that this is a ripe one for you to keep exploring. When after the break we do the rest of rain, mm-hmm. and if you've read Radical Acceptance, I struggled mightily with it, and I actually still have, you know, all sorts of, you know, it's not our fault; it's the society's predicament, and mm-hmm. to take it personally is um, suffering. But you need to find your way through that one. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for bringing it into the room. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. We have a person right up here. If you come all the way up front, yeah. Oh, you're nearer. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Hey. Um, I'm really curious. What are you personally working on now in your path to awakening? <laughs> I love your question, and I was about to go. Okay, it's break time, you know. But 
that I want to honor your question. Um, Trusting the Gold is the actually the title of a new book I'm actually in process with. And it's not, it's always a deepening process for me. It's like trusting the goodness, seeing the condition, seeing this, the covering of where I want to look good or present well or do well and then knowing, sure, that's there, it's okay because there's a real caring and authentic spirit here and trusting that gold enough so that I can be compassionate towards the conditioning and not tense up against it. And I, it's, so it's an ongoing process like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting that out. Yeah. In the back, I don't know if we have somebody way, way back there, last row, right towards the aisle, or not quite towards the aisle, few in. I'm not sure if I have the yeses and the noes correct. Sure. What happened for me, and it's about being a grandparent, um, is when I, and I have some fear around how one of the kids is going to do. And when I tried the yes, I mean, I know it's about fear and it's about some trauma in my own background. And the yes didn't work, but when at the end you said, well, try no. And it's like the no worked because I am a flawed grandma in that I am going to have fear around this kid. And that felt freeing. That felt better but I'm not sure I'm getting the yeses and the noes right. Yeah, in a way, in a way, you did. You said yes to your no. <laughs> and 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 I'm not trying to be zenny about it, but you know, it's what yes is doing is acknowledging the fear and acknowledging the imperf- imperfectness and just acknowledging reality and making peace with it. So yes is making peace with what is in this moment. Which is what it sounds like you did. Is that so? There's different layers, I guess. Saying yes, unfortunately, even when I'm listening now, making peace with what's going wrong. No, you're not making peace with what's going wrong. You're making peace with your own inner reaction. So you're making peace with the fact that, yeah, there's fear. There's fear about how my grandchild, I love this being, I'm afraid they're not getting what they need to be who they can be. There's fear. It's acknowledging the truth. Okay, okay. That's, that's easier, yeah. <laughs> I've seen many, many people have gone through this Try to keep it simple, and and you might even get rid of the word yes, and just say, what is predominant, and can I let this be here right now? These are two really, um, and by the way, we're going to take a break, because I promised a break, so we're going to stop here, but these are really two very powerful questions that can, if you don't, if the word yes confuses, just what is happening right now, and can I be with this, or let this be? And stay with that, because what you're letting be is the realness of the fear. And that's what's important. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take 20. And it's or 18. <laughs> because I like doing things on the hour. So we'll get back together at noon in the room here and um, enjoy your break.
Okay, if you can't hear me, please raise your hand. <laughs> Welcome back. So what we've been doing so far, and you, again, to revisit our evolutionary perspective, is learning to make the shift from fight-flight-freeze, when we're in reaction and acting out of that, to the more evolved uh, consciousness of attend and befriend, and which requires being able to in some way interrupt our habitual behavior and, and find a way back home again to where we're resourceful. And we all need a way back. Everybody has their, their strategies. Um, some work better than others. For one woman, uh, the, way, the way it was described, this, there was, she was in a supermarket with her uh, badly behaving three-year-old granddaughter. And a, a man, a gentleman, was kind of there too and observing her, what was going on. It was obvious. She had her hands completely full. This little girl was screaming for treats and for whatever was around, you know, whatever she was passing by, the arm was going out for it. And meanwhile, the grandma's working her way, you know, working her way through the aisles, and she's saying in a controlled voice, Easy, Ellen. We won't be long. We won't be long. Easy, girl. Another outburst happens. This guy's watching, and, and uh, Grandma calmly says, It's okay, Ellen. Just a couple more minutes. We'll be out of there. Just hang, hang, in, hang in, honey. At the checkout, the little terror is throwing things out of the basket, you know, and so on. Um, again, this controlled voice, Ellen, Ellen, relax, dear. Don't get upset. We'll be home in five minutes. Stay cool. Very impressed, this guy sees her go out into the parking lot and at the car, and so he comes over and he you know, says, you know, it was none of my business, but you were amazing in there. And um, I don't know how you did it. That whole time you kept your composure, no matter how loud and disruptive she got, um, you kept calmly saying things would be okay. Ellen's very lucky to have you as her grandma. Thanks to the grandma, but I'm Ellen. <laughs> This little terror is Jennifer or whatever. But <laughs> so the inquiry is like, really, what works? What heals and frees us? What in the moment can wake us up past that, that small reactive identity? And in the Buddhist tradition, I think one of the you know, all-time great stories that many of you know, but that just keeps coming to mind is... Uh, the Buddha would be teaching, you know, in a big field and uh, skirting around the edges futively, periodically would come Mara, who is known as the kind of shadow, the god of greed, hatred, delusion, and everything else. And um, the Buddha's loyal friend and attendant, Ananda, would freak out when Mara appeared. And he'd go, oh no, Mara's here, you know, that kind of thing. But the Buddha would say, you know, calm down, it's okay, or chill, or whatever he said back then. And he'd go right over to Mara and say, I see you, Mara. Let's have tea. And there is a, um, a sophistication, a psychological sophistication in that story that's really beautiful. It's the two wings of, you know, I see you, that's mindfulness, and let's have tea. Compassion, heartfulness. And that's what we're learning to do with rain. We're learning to pause 
and truly attend and befriend, in the deepest way befriend, with nurturing. And it's challenging because in order to really have tea with what's going on, we have to feel the stuff we've been running from. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's the hard work of spiritual practice is that we've been conditioned to run away from vulnerability and from from fear and it takes courage. Um, One of my favorite poets, Mark Nepo, who many of you might know, describes this as the exquisite risk. And it's exquisite because in the moments of a full presence there's an absolute mystery and freedom that can open up. And it's a risk because we're being with what is out of control. We're being with the rawness of the weather of the universe inside our own bodies, the exquisite risk. And yet unless we take it, unless we have tea with Mara, we cannot discover that liberating presence, the love and awareness that really is our home. So we're learning how to take tea with Mara. And if you did the recognize and allow, you know, being present and and opening to what's there and you found that the tangle was still there, it was still sticky, that's just a sign to deepen attention. And that's where the investigating and nurturing of rain come in. And that's where in the last part of our morning we're going to look at more at some of the, the skillful means when we investigate and when we nurture, how we can really bring it alive. So um, I thought I'd start with a, a rain story that, uh, that really touched me. And this is in Radical Compassion. I learned from just being with this, my friend with this one. She's caught in that kind of generational sandwich. And she had a preteen son with you know, attention deficit disorder. And she was also caring for an elderly father. And she had to go back and forth each week to a nursing home and evening rush hour to... Or it was an assisted living facility, and he, and he'd love it when she'd arrive, and every time she'd leave, he'd kind of deflate, and when are you coming back? That kind of thing. And so she was building up this resentment, uh, you know, the demands on her life, and him making her feel guilty, and and she mostly resented herself for not being more, you know, gracious and open-hearted. So we decided to do. Uh, rain together with that. And so the recognizing was her feeling of, you know, anger and annoyance and and guilt. And she allowed, she said, okay, let this be here. And then she started investigating and underneath she very quickly, and I was thinking of what someone shared today, she very quickly got to a place of shame. Like this is really a deep kind of a, a failing that I'm I'm never enough for the people around me and I'm not a loving person, I'm not a giving person. There's some fundamental flaw in how I'm doing things. And so I started asking questions and, and investigating. You're gonna, when you investigate inwardly, you're going to find questions that work for you. And each person, there's some variation on the kind of questions. Some of the most important questions are, well, where, where do you feel this? Because you want to get into the body. And she could feel this kind of clutch, and it had a feeling of an aching hole that was there. And I asked her, you know, what are you believing? And she, as I mentioned, she believed she was failing everyone. She was never enough. 
and then you know and I had her had her really feel that and get in touch with that feeling and then asked her how familiar that was and she said all my life now sometimes it's really useful to sense how familiar and how far back because then we start getting what's sometimes called comprehensive mindfulness or or really a sense of the landscape of our lives and for her she was able to sense how even when she was very young she felt like she couldn't do it right she couldn't be enough no matter what she did somehow that she couldn't be enough that sense of failure and when she got in touch with that it's it was like one of those ouch moments where she directly contacted the suffering that had been with her for so long. And I sometimes think of that as a soul sadness, that when we really register how many moments of our life have been imprisoned by a sense of not enough, when we recognize how many moments we've been moving through our life and in some way not really engaging fully and feeling intimate with others and feeling alive in the adventure because there was that self-consciousness of um, something's wrong here, I'm falling short. There's a sense of a loss of life and that's grief. And that was what it was for her. She went from the shame into this grief about how much that prison had kept her from living. While she was feeling uh, the feelings I was having her, and I often invite people to do this, touch where she felt it the most. And I invite you, if you haven't done this before, to experiment today with uh, kinesthetic. Because we are dissociated from our bodies and we don't know how to really be connected and we need some anchors. So for her to put her hand on her heart both helped her stay with her feelings and it was the beginning of nurturing. Now, even though rain has steps, not really. Our, our organism isn't ste- isn't, doesn't do steps. It's, it's a weave of living energy, right? So nurturing, as soon as you can start bringing in nurturing, great. So she was putting her hand on her heart and she was realizing the pain of loss. And then I asked the key question with investigating the key question, which is really, what does this most vulnerable place in me need? What does it need? Because we need to sense what's going to be the nurturing that's going to make a difference, right? You could also say, how does this want me to be with it, right? What does this place need? And it really needed to be seen and to be loved. She needed to be reassured much much as I did with my mother, that you, lo- you love your dad, you love your son, love is here. She needed that reminder. So she had her hand on her heart and she just offered that inwardly, though, that kind of message. And, and then she could find in the space afterwards that rather than being the identity of the, you know, guilty, falling short mother and daughter she was that more in that compassionate presence. And I asked her an interesting question. I said, who would you be if you really didn't believe anymore that something was wrong with you? It's a really interesting question. If you didn't believe that, and she said, just this, this kind of mysterious presence. I mean, there's no, I don't know what, who I'd be. I'd just be this, you know. That's after the rain. So she reported doing this rain process 
in the parking lot outside of the assisted living facility and really doing that, you know, feeling her her tensing against being with her father and the guilt and stuff that came up and doing the rain process and feeling more spacious, going in. And they they had uh, a much more relaxed time. They laughed out loud about some of the antics that when she was a little girl, her and their dog, and uh, she promised to put all the some stuff onto digital, you know, so she could show them slides and so on. When she left, he didn't ask her when she was coming back because she had really been there. And I think of it over and over again how that we really want to be here. I mean, we the, the urge of life is to live fully and yet we always kind of discard this moment. We're on our way somewhere else trying to plan or worry and control. But she was actually there. And so I want to just kind of make some comments on, on that particular story and how it might work for you, which is that when you investigate, it really helps to have some communication with the parts of you that you feel that are vulnerable or hurting or angry or upset. Because in that communicating, you begin to establish a relationship. You begin to connect. Those parts of you start feeling seen and heard and felt. So that's really important. To keep coming back to your body. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I have a hard time feeling my body. And when emotions come up, I have a hard time feeling emotions. And so think of RAIN as part of the training in that direction. And pay attention to your throat and your chest and your belly, the the center line of the body. And use your touch. And one of the ways I often think about it is that our emotions are like these, um, you know, wild creatures that live in the shadows. And... um, we're kind of standing in the field saying, come on out, I want to I get in touch with you, I want to feel you, I want to be with you, I want to have tea with you. Um, and there has to be a certain amount of safety and trust and so on for those emotions to let themselves be felt. So you can't force it, but what you can do is sincerely just bring your attention into your body and say, I'm here, I'm present, I want to feel whatever wants to be felt. Okay? with practice, just by sending that message of, I sincerely am here, you know, this belongs, I'm willing to feel you, you'll start being more and more in touch, somatically, with what's going on. Explore and experiment with the questions you ask yourself. I'm going to be guiding you through a full RAIN meditation in a little bit, and uh, play with the questions. See what questions really work for you. You know, one of the questions is, you know, really what most wants my attention and where am I feeling this? Another question I sometimes ask is, well, what am I believing right now? I mean, I found for myself that when I'm in a bad mood in some way, somewhere underneath that bad mood there's a belief that I'm falling short or that something around the corner is going to be really difficult and hard to handle. There's that belief. So if I can bring that into the light of day, it's no longer, I'm no longer so sticky with it. It's so identified because it's in my awareness. I have more space around it. So it's useful to ask, what am I believing? But then once you 
if you don't see anything, just drop the question because it can get very cognitive. But if you sense a core belief, then feel how it's experienced in your body. Come back to your body. And if there's ever one mantra in rain, it's keep coming back to your body because the freedom you'll discover is going to come through an embodied experience. Okay, nurturing. So we get in touch with what's going on and start feeling the vulnerability. And then the last part of RAIN is nurture. Now, sometimes we're going to nurture from our own self to ourself, like from our more awake, high self, our loving self, or compassionate self. And often I encourage using touch. You know, if you just let the touch be tender and then send words through your kind of through that touch to where vulnerability is, um, it can go very deep. Uh, Experiment with what message of kindness you want to send to yourself. Again, it's like, what is needed right now? You might offer the message you most sense that vulnerable place needs to hear. But sometimes what you're going to find is that you're way too regressed and small to be able to offer yourself compassion or kindness. And there's probably not one person in this room that doesn't know what it's like to be really regressed. And there's no way we can comfort ourselves. There's nobody home to offer comfort. We're just completely locked into our limbic system. The frontal cortex has gone kind of flatlined, so to speak, right? So there's just no way. So at those times, it becomes really powerful to get the knack of how to reach towards some larger source. Anything that you can imagine or sense might be able to bring some comfort. And by way of example, I, um, this is another retreat story from my life where um, I, went, I did the Christmas holidays with my family and then went off to retreat and within a day or two felt appalled as I started reviewing the holidays at how I hadn't really shown up. That I I could just go through, you know, different ways that I had been really tight with different people and, you know, just preoccupied and I just did not like the way I was. So, okay, we'll do rain. So I, you know, kind of recognized and allowed it and felt the, the feelings of deficiency and shame and then tried to offer good messages But that place in me that felt bad dug in its heels and it just wouldn't take any of it. It's like, okay, nice messages, but this just doesn't feel good. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be this person. It was just utterly unreceptive. And it's like the more I try to nurture, the more it became really clear the aversion I had to that self-centered person that wasn't able to really show up. And... So I started crying, and from the place in me that was crying, the words that came out were, please love me, just to the universe. It's like, you know, this feeling of badness just wants to be loved. Let me be okay. So I was just, there was these tears and this calling out, please love me, and there was some sense of some formless light presence, love that was out there that I just really wanted to like hold me and be present and and uh, embrace me. And the more I reached out from yearning, 
And I think yearning makes us porous. Do you know what I mean by porous? It makes us more available. The more I called out, please love me, the more I felt this washing through of tenderness. It was like I had gone to the real ouch place. And from that place, you know, really asked. And it was as if the beloved was kissing me on the brow. That was the sense of it. And then what happened was it would wash through and wash through until finally there was this kind of letting go and becoming that that loving presence. And what I realized, it wasn't outside me. What I was calling for wasn't some spirit out there. It was my own awakened heart. But I needed to call out and imagine something outside as a bridge. It's as John O'Donohue puts it, prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. And the belonging's always here, but we forget the gold. We forget it. So this is, I'm just sharing with you what the Buddhists would call a skillful means, which is if you can't offer self-compassion, imagine a, a larger source. It takes you to the same place. There's not really a self-offering compassion, and there's not like some entity out there. There's a remembering of the field of love that we belong to. And these are different pathways home. Does that make sense? Okay, because I'm going to be, when I guide you, I'm going to be giving you the option. I'm going to say, you know, offer this to yourself and find the words or whatever. And if it doesn't feel like you can, then imagine some other source. And it could be your dog. It could be your best friend. It could be your grandmother. It could be um, a spiritual uh, being that you feel resonance with. But the key is, with the investigating, that we need to get in touch with where the vulnerability is. We need to get in touch with that. Now, another reminder is that you might run into a feeling of, this is too much. You start investigating and the fear or the shame feels like too much. And if that's the case, uh, right back to nurturing. Remember, even though it's the last step in rain, it's also the grounds that even allow rain to happen. You have to be sufficiently safe to do rain. So let your, if, if you end up today and all you've done is more practice of nurturing, you've given your life a great blessing. Because nurturing really, we all need to deepen our pathways to nurturing. I know for one woman I was working with who had um, been abused by her father and also by different partners, repeated abuse, um, we started working together and we spent months on nurture before we even began to explore RAIN. And, I, and the way that everybody has to find their pathway to nurture For her, I said, you know, when do you feel some sense of safety and love? And she said, well, my sister and my best friend. And then over the months I got to be included. So the three of us became like her her allies. And and I actually had her install the feeling of safety and well-being. Installs just 
people into neuroscience will talk about installing good feelings, and it's really a helpful thing to know that she felt like it was like she was in a warm bath, and I said, let it fail yourselves, and now just stay in it. What's it really like? Get used to it. Because we have to really feel the sense of safety and love for a certain amount of time for it to become accessible to us at other times. So she would do that. And so for months, that was her meditation, was just to, when she felt perfectly well, she would reflect on uh, being surrounded by loving presence. And then she was able to find times when she felt really, when things were really difficult, that she could start doing rain and call on the nurturing. Really healing. Different for different people. One vet I worked with, you know, his way of nurturing was um, to call on Jesus and really feel Jesus and the light of Jesus surrounding him. So it needs to be very gradual if there's trauma, nurturing at any time. So we're going to practice together and the way we're going to do it is in what, um, and some of you may have done this already, how many of you have experienced rain partners? Can I see by hands? Yeah, a few. It to me is... um, it's a bit of a fast track. It's de- it goes very deep. And we have a really good situation to explore that. So I'm going to um, invite you to practice in, uh, in pairs. And I'll, I'll tell you every, every step as it goes. Um, the first thing is on silence. If you could um, find a person that you're going to be doing rain with, and I'll, I'll explain how it's going to go as we as we do it. But just find your person, and then if you're looking around and you're, the people on either side have already partnered up, we can match you up. So let's do that right now. Can find your partner and raise and stand up and raise your hand if you're looking for a partner, so you can find each other. And. Shh. This has to be on silence because otherwise we will lose our capacity to move forward and keep doing this. If you see somebody with a raised hand, please move your chair, feel free to move your chairs around right now, but come sitting next to a person with a raised hand. You may need to stand up. Sorry. And, um, and who is looking for a partner right now? Let's see. Okay, we've got people on either side of the room here. Can you, would you mind coming over? I'm going to... Thanks so much for moving. Okay, we had somebody over there and we've got somebody here. Can you, can you raise your hand? Are you still looking for a partner, sir? No, you have a partner. Who else is looking for a partner right now? What's that? Yeah, you're good. Who else is looking for a partner right now? Please raise your hand. Was there somebody over here that was looking? Does this mean everyone has a partner? Oh, good. Okay. Um, Now, before we take the next step, um, all we need to know is the who's going first. I'm going to ask you, whoever has the brightest colors on, you're going to be the one going first. So... (laughs) 
Okay. So, now before we start, um, I'd like to ask you, if you will, to stand up. To move um, so that you're as much possible space, and I know that we are a crowded room, but see if you can move so that angle yourself so that if you go like this, you're not going to abuse and violate anybody nearby you. Okay. That's all I need. If you got that, that's good. Okay. Now... Come into a standing posture and just take a moment to make sure your feet are shoulder-width apart so that you're standing in a stable way. And you might close your eyes and let your awareness come into your body. You might relax your feet. So you let them widen a little so you can kind of feel your connection to the earth. Get a little rooted here. And see if you can soften the backs of the knees. And you might put one hand on your lower belly and the other on the sacrum behind you. And then explore softening your belly. You might notice that you were tight, holding in. Kind of like a two-year-old, that undefended belly. You know, we repeatedly contract and it helps us soften over and over. And the belly is where we digest life experience. So let the breath come deep into the torso and loosen and feel the receiving the breath with a softening belly. And keeping your palms still there, you might invite the tailbone to relax towards the ground. You might feel only a small amount of movement. Just adjusting a little in this body, aligning, keeping your attention inward, allowing the palms to gently float in space back towards the sides. Feeling your posture, feeling your whole body standing here. You might relax the back of the neck, the occipital ridge at the base of the skull. And maybe just a little mental suggestion of lengthening there. You might notice the chin goes parallel to the ground. And maybe the shoulders fall away a bit from the neck. Palms are floating in space, just opening all your senses. And then just gently rotate the palms so they're facing out. And with the in-breath, sweeping slowly up, stretching up, and then exhaling, rotating again so the palms are down, sweeping down. And continue this movement at your own pace. Inhale, sweeping up, slow enough so that you can feel the movement of the arms as if you're moving through water. Feel the sensations.
the last sweeping up, inhaling deeply, and then keeping the arms up. Let the breath relax so you're breathing in a natural way. The arms are stretched up, stretching up a little more with the left arm, and then stretching up a little more with the right arm, and coming even, and then now very slowly allow the palms to float down, slow enough so if somebody was watching you, they might not notice the movement, micro-movements. And just feel the energy and sensation, the aliveness and presence, right here. on silence and with mindfulness when you're done gently open your eyes and come seated so that you're near your partner kind of angled a little towards your partner versus towards the people around you but let's keep the silence if you will begin internally with identifying what you'd like to bring rain to. So take a moment to close your eyes. And perhaps you already have decided on something, but if you haven't, again, you want to find some situation in your life where you react in a way that you'd like to have more freedom around. Something that triggers you. It could be something repeating itself with somebody that's close to you. Work situation. It might have something to do with your health. Maybe it has something to do with the reaction to what somebody else is going through. So you're identifying a situation, the behaviors, or experience that really feels like, like it wants your attention, a healing intention. And you might feel your intent right now, that in some way may this practice that we're doing serve your heart, serve awakening, serve freedom. So just feel your own sincerity, because that that will guide and hold everything. And kind of let go of outcomes and just feel, may, may this serve. And then you can bring your 
curiosity and care to it. I'm just checking in now. Does anyone need more time in finding something that you want to work on? Okay. So the first part of this with your partner is we're going to do the recognizing and allowing with our partners. And what you'll be, what I'm asking you to do is first the first person, and then I'll t- I'll I'll time you and tell you when to stop. We'll be speaking, and then you'll stop when I tell you, and then the second person will speak. And each of you, if you could describe the issue just in a sentence, what's going on? You know, like that, like you know, my son is watching on is online all the time, or wanting to watch cartoons, and it's. Um, bringing up all sorts of guilt and, and shame and so on. Um, bringing that, bringing so naming, you know, the, the situation or the issue, and then and then naming what you're aware of, whatever most is most predominant that you're recognizing is coming up, and it may be um, just that, just I'm feeling guilt and shame, or you may be an unbe- feeling and I'm believing such and such, but just whatever is most predominant right at the beginning. You, you'll have more time to investigate later. So that's what you'll, each of you'll do. You just have a, a couple minutes for each person. If, and if it's very, very quick, just come into silence and close your eyes. Okay, so again, the first person's going to describe the issue in a sentence or so and whatever's predominant. Then come into silence and then I'll tell you when the second person is doing the same. Okay, opening your eyes. First person, please begin. So when you've finished up, coming into silence and taking a moment in this silence to allow the experience that you named, the feelings, to be there. This is the time of just saying, okay, this is how it is right now. It's that, that honesty. 
letting it be, and partner who listens, you help hold that space of allowing. Just feel your own heart making room for what your partner shared. Okay, we're going to be shifting now. So you who were listening, you now are going to begin to speak, and you who are speaking, holding a space of listening and presence. Please begin. So coming into silence, and as we just did, whoever was sharing, this is time for allowing, uh, to in some way put aside any ideas of fixing and really sense the possibility of letting be. Okay, this is the reality of the moment. This is how life is being experienced. Let it be and partner you hold in the same spirit, a space of allowing. Allowing creates a kind of pause and a possibility to deepen attention. And so we're going to move on now, and you're going to be doing this, this next segment on your own. If you need to unsilence and staying inward, shift your posture, position, anything to be more comfortable so you can really pay attention to your own experience, please do so. Don't move away, like, in, in, in a different part of the room, though, because you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be back with your partner at the end. you 
recognized some stuck place and allowed the feelings to be there. And you might ask yourself as you begin to investigate, so what part of me most wants attention right now? What's most difficult? What are the feelings that are most difficult? And just feel into the body with interest and curiosity what's really going on. Where do I feel the feelings most strongly? And it might be the throat or the chest or the belly. It might be a place that a feeling real shame or hatred or fear or hurt. And you might ask yourself, when this is going on, what am I believing? Am I believing that there's some basic flawedness in me, that I'm bad? Am I believing that I'm unlovable? Am I believing I'll never change and feeling some despair over that? Is there a belief that's there? Just just kind of scan and sense intuitively. If you find a belief, like like something's really wrong with me, sense how that lives in your body. When you're really believing that, how does it feel inside? What's the felt sense of that? You're sensing into the, the worst part of this for you. What's the worst part about this? And you might even let your body posture express how you're feeling. And this is something, if you've never done before, can be really helpful. For some of you it might mean slumping, or your shoulders going forward and down, or maybe your hands are clenched in fists, and let your face express it. So you're really letting your body be free to express what the most vulnerable place in you is feeling. and noticing where you feel that vulnerability most directly in your body. And you might, if you haven't already, put your hand where you feel it. And breathe with it. And like those wild animals in the woods, breathe with it and just invite it to be there. This belongs. You might even send that message again. This belongs. This belongs. So you're letting yourself feel what's the worst thing about this and where that is in your body. And you're bringing that touch to help you stay with the feeling. To begin to communicate with that place, even with your touch. And you might even let the sense the touch being tender. Like what happens if you make the touch tender? You can ask the part of you that's having a hard time, 
that's feeling most stuck. You know, how do, how do you want me to be with you? You might ask, you know, what, what do you most need? Maybe it needs to trust its goodness, that it's basically good. Maybe it needs love, just to feel love, or compassion, or forgiveness. Maybe it needs to be seen, just to be seen. Sometimes you can almost listen and that part is really communicating, please see me, or please love me, or hold me. So just listen. Notice the part of you that's listening, that the witness, the more awake, wise part of you. So that you might take a few breaths and adjust your posture so that you feel like you can inhabit and get in touch with the most aware, awake part of your heart-mind, sensing the needs of the most vulnerable place in you. So you're really calling on your own wise self, your high self, your future self. It's kind of the bodhisattva that's here. Or you may be calling on some other part of the universe that seems out there, a spiritual figure, a loved one, trusted one, a wise one, and offer what's needed. This is the time to bring nurturing to the part of you that needs it. And you might sense that there's nurturing coming through your touch, or you might also sense that there's a message right now, the message that this place most needs to hear. Stay connected with the vulnerable place, breathing and feeling your intention to receive. What does it mean to really let in love? What does it mean to say, please love me and actually be porous? Or please see me and be more transparent. What does it mean to really take the exquisite risk and let that nurturing in? It could be as simple as that message, it's okay. I'm not leaving, I'm staying here. I'm with you. Trust your goodness. 
I'm sorry, and I love you. Any words that go right to the heart of the place that most needs it. It's quite natural with rain to revisit again and again so that we go deeper and deeper into that letting in of love, becoming that love. But wherever you are, you might sense the quality of heart and presence that's here. Just to relax and let it fill you and rest in it. Get familiar with it. You might even ask in these moments, what's the sense of my own being? What's true here? Maybe sense where you started, that kind of smaller self that's the covering, you know, where reactive self and the quality of presence now, and just to sense the shift. Moving towards that beautiful expression from Sridhar Sargadatta, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm no thing, nothing. Between the two my life flows. In a few moments we're going to end the inner part of the meditation, do a final short sharing. So if you need to in some way uh, use a tissue or adjust how you're sitting or anything you need to kind of self-care, staying on silence for now. And as you're doing that, here, here's what I'd like to ask you, if you will, to share with your partner. Sharing with your partner whatever might have felt challenging and whatever you want to remember, whatever you feel like you learned. Okay, and we'll do it in the same order as we did it before. So turning to your partner... And I'll tell you when to stop. Uh, first, first person, whatever was challenging or whatever you want to remember, please uh, begin.
please finish what you're saying. And come into silence. Second person, it's your turn. Please begin. Okay, finishing up what you're saying. So we're going to be taking a lunch break and I would like to invite you to... um, check in again with your partners before you disperse just to make sure you're both okay. Just, it's, there's a lot that can get stirred up in this. So um, just to invite you to do that. Also to let you know that um, people are, are practicing RAIN partners all over the place and there's a protocol that on my website and it's all for free. And if so, in our teacher training, we have our teachers do RAIN partners with each other. It's a really powerful modality. So if, if it appeals to you, uh, you might decide to work with somebody once every couple of weeks that's a friend and explore this. A couple of announcements uh, to make for you. We'll be meeting again back here at 2.10. And uh, for those of you in uh, 
this or the last cohort of MMTCP. Um, I, I will be up in the East Hall at 5 to 2. So that would be a place where we can have a chance to say hello to each other. So 5 to 2 um, up in the East Hall. And again, 2.10, we'll all be back here to start the rest of the afternoon. So take a few moments to check in with each other and then enjoy the day. Move, stretch, and enjoy. Thank you.
I'm happy to show you All right, we're in the home stretch. You had lunch, it's two o'clock. This is the harder, harder part of the day because you've eaten and you're gonna wanna do nappy time because you're feeling it. So uh, don't, because you're gonna miss the, like, the best parts. Uh, Tara wanted me to remind you that her email list is outside and there's all sorts of goodness that happens when you're on the email list. Um, she wanted me to remind you that from 2 to 5, there'll be no official bio break. So um, make sure that uh, you take care of yourselves. You know how to do that. And for those of you who maybe have kind of have the whole area in front of your feet and someone needs to pass by, just be a little mindful to make room for folks to be able to walk around. Yay. Um, those CEs, those I don't know, there's like a thousand of you all taking CEs today. Um, that's going to be set up out in the lobby. You're going to be looking for your last name on a very random list because it was done by the way that you signed in. Don't forget to sign out. I cannot mail you your certificate and vouch for you. But I believe you. I just can't vouch for you. And last but not least, Jack always likes us to, to remind you of two things. Whenever coming to Spirit Rock, please bring a friend. Please carpool as much as you can. The Valley really, really appreciates three and four and 12 of you in one car, especially if you live in the East Bay, since we still don't have mass transit out here. Bring some friends. Um, and always make the right hand turn leaving Spirit Rock. Not the left hand turn the right hand turn and go around through the little redwoods and look at the horses and, you know, smile at them. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon.
Let's take uh, a few moments to take that sacred pause, like find that clearing in the dense forest and uh, come sitting in a way that will allow you to come into stillness. Sense the possibility of letting your, all your senses be awake. So you might relax a little in the body and wake up all the senses kinesthetically just to feel the aliveness here. Be aware of your body breathing, sounds around you. relaxing with what's happening. So there's that simple noticing and allowing, moment by moment. when there's a noticing that the mind has drifted, let the homecoming be a kind of relaxing back. So you reopen the lens of attention with some interest to what it's like right here.
And from the sense of hereness and presence, take the last bit of this quiet time to check in on whatever issue you were working on uh, right before lunch. This is, you might consider this a light rain, just to see how it is, how it's sitting in you. And a light rain, as we started before earlier with full rain, just begins by bringing a situation to mind where we get triggered. And recognizing whatever is most predominant, whatever about it most comes forward. There might be some traces or there might be strong feelings. And whatever's there, whatever you notice as you bring that situation to mind, the first thing to do is the allowing. Okay, let's let this be just as it is. Not to make it wrong, not to push it away. This belongs. And when in a light rain, when you investigate, you simply feel whatever you're feeling in your body, wherever it's most strong, wherever there's a feeling of vulnerability, and just breathe with it. And you can, if you want, place your hand there, just as a way to connect. Breathe and connect, investigating, feeling what's here. And just sense in this moment what nurturing means, if there's any reminder. Whatever gesture of kindness, just in this moment, might soften something, open something, warm up something. And notice even in these moments if there's a sense of a a shift of moving from some limiting narrative, limiting feeling and identification to a little more space, a little more tenderness. Sensing that this space and tenderness is more the truth of who you are than any limiting idea any feeling that comes and goes. The poet Dana Falds writes this. She says, Why wait for your awakening? Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? No, I can't step across the threshold you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid and my motives aren't pure. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the radiance, the tenderness of your true nature. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, 
don't continue to believe in your stories of separation and failure. This is the day of your awakening. So taking a few full breaths, when you're ready, open your eyes. So I want to welcome you back from lunch break where this is the first in the history of Spirit Rock where one of these uh, day-longs we've had kind of the run of the place which is really, really cool and lovely to be able to have you spread around outside. And just to, <clears throat> just to put a frame a little bit around where we've been, where we're going, if, if we take that evolutionary context, it's that really sensing and becoming aware of the trance when we get stuck, when we're reactive, and learning the pathway of waking up out of a small identity, of a stuck self, and that kind of homecoming to something larger, to beingness, to awareness, to love. And I often think of it fight, flight, flight, fight, freeze, to attend and befriend. And what we find is that we start getting familiar with our strategies to feel better, the strategies that keep us actually stuck. And every one of us has, I I call them false refuges sometimes when I wrote True Refuge, a lot of people found that helpful. They're not bad, they're just ways that we're trying to control things to feel better, but unfortunately they don't work. And we have all different styles and some of us are trying to prove ourselves by being, you know, workaholic overachievers and some of us are, you know, numbing ourselves with uh, food or drugs in a way that's hurtful and some of us are trying to control other people. One story, the young man invited his mother over to dinner and uh, during the meal the mother kept noticing this, her son John and his, seemed to have some real the connection with his roommate who is very beautiful. And so she starts really thinking there's something going on and he says, you know, I know what you might be thinking but I assure you that Carrie and I are, are just roommates. Well, a week after that dinner, Carrie comes up to John and says, you know, ever since your mother came here I haven't been able to find that beautiful silver soup ladle that we have. Do you think she did something with it? And he said, well, I can't imagine but let me check out with her. So he writes an email. Dear Mother, I'm not saying that you did or did not do anything with the soup ladle, but it's odd that it disappeared after dinner. Do you know anything about this? So he gets an email back. Here's what it says. Dear Son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying that you don't, (laughs) but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. The title of this is Don't Lie to Your Mother. (laughs) So we all have our versions of controlling. And as long... This is the thing. As long as we're in a moment of controlling, we can't be with the reality that's here in a way that heals and frees us. That's the idea. That's why we start to allow what we're experiencing and really open to it. 
So this is the evolutionary shift that we're exploring and this morning we explored how we can bring rain to a a stuck place. We're going to open it up now this afternoon with a few different practices that all are looking at um, how we can wake up our hearts with each other. And there's a Rumi quote that I've always loved uh, that kind of points us points out the direction. Rumi writes this, he says, Your path is not to seek for love, but merely seek and find all the barriers within yourself you've built against it. Okay. The last time I was here in Spirit Rock, I shared that, and there was a Sufi scholar, Rumi scholar person here in the group who said that's a beautiful quote and it's not quite complete. It's, you know, your path is not to seek for love, but to seek and find the barriers you've created against it and embrace them. So that's really critical to know to the extent that we block out and push away others, create separations, it's not our fault. We're, again, if you remember from the beginning of the day, um, we do that because our life feels dangerous, we feel endangered, we are trying to protect ourselves. We're doing the best we can. So it's when we see those strategies to be very, very kind towards them. So let's start looking. What are the barriers that we create? You know, and I find that one of the, 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 the phrases that has been most useful to me is that when we're in a trance, when we're feeling separate, Others become unreal to us. It's a trance of the unreal other. And what I mean by that is that when we're stressed and tight and reactive, others are no longer subjective living beings that we can sense their, their realness. They become one of three things. Either they're an object that in some way we want something from. Okay, I want your time, I want your attention, I want your affections because when we're in a selfing place, we're wanting, or we're fearing, I don't want you to impose on me or ask me anything or suffocate me or threaten me, or else the person doesn't fit into our schema for wanting or fearing, and instead they're kind of unimportant, in which case we really don't relate to them much at all. You know, they, they really don't matter to us. It's like that story of the guy who's sitting in his living room and he hears a knock on the door and he opens the door and there's a little snail on the ground. So he picks up the snail and he just throws it, you know, a bunch of yards, closes the door. Three years later, <laughs> there's a knock on the door. He opens it, same snail. The snail says, what the heck was that all about? <laughs> And just to let you know a little about me, that's like one of my favorite little stories in the whole world. It is there's something about that snail saying, what the heck was that all about? It's just... So this is basically saying that when we're in reactivity and trance, others become unreal. They become objects to us. And if we want to be able to widen the circles and open up our caring, it takes intentional attention to bring people back into reality for us. And the 
biggest way that we lock down and keep them unreal that I think is worth our attention, and this is where we're going to spend some time this afternoon, is through blame. It's, we, most people I know have somebody or many bodies that on some level we're holding resentment towards or feeling blame towards. It can range from mild resentment to deep feelings of um, betrayal and abuse and, you know, huge shutting down of our hearts. And often it's, it's, it happens, and we can see it in this culture, where when people don't agree with us. A little girl asked her mother, how did the human race appear? And her mother basically said, well, God made Adam and Eve, and they had children, and all mankind was made. And then she asked her father the same question, and his response was, well, many years ago there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. So she's confused. She goes back to her mother and said, well, you told me that the human race was created by God, and Dad told me that we came from monkeys, and, you know, what's up? And the mother answered, well, it's very simple, dear. He told you about his side of the family, (laughs) and... I told you about mine, you know. (laughs) So we're going to do a little bit of a dive into what I call rain on blame, okay? And we're not doing it right away. I'm going to set the stage a little because it's one of the most, one of the most potent and empowering um, understandings like a liberating understanding that we can ever have, is that in the moments that we're judging and blaming, we are in a trance. When we're judging and blaming, and I mean aversive judging and blaming, I don't mean what's called discriminating wisdom, which discriminating wisdom would say, well, when I act out in an angry way, then the person I'm speaking to is going to feel threatened and kind of pull away, you know, so that's what happens. Um, that's discriminating wisdom. Uh, aversive judgment would say, you're bad because you're angry. You're a bad, angry person. So I'm talking about where we get aversive towards the person's being. That's what I mean by being. And, when, and that's when we're in a tra- trance. And not only are we creating separation from them, but we're creating separation from our own wholeness of being. We're not living in the full, in our, we're not living from the gold in those moments. We're living on the covering, and it's not our fault. It's, it's a conditioned reaction, and it's natural, but it, it's one, it's a block that we need to pay attention to. So we're going to explore how do we let go of blame, and I might weave in the word forgiveness. If you don't like the word forgiveness, you can substitute it for bringing compassion to something. But the movement we're talking about here, and it's, and it's really an evolutionary movement, is from the fight, you know, reacting as a, a separate self and us-them fighting them to attend and befriend, how to let go of the armoring of blame. And it's hard. There's that saying, I don't know who said it, but everybody thinks forgiveness is a great idea, you know, until we have something to forgive. And then it's really, really hard. It's like our whole body rebels against forgiving. It's like, you know, it's really, really tight. So first to say that when we're threatened, we're designed to armor up and to fight. And the more injury, the more armor. 
And anger, like every other emotion, has intelligence. And, and that's really important. This is not like a, um, like a thing where if you want to be a spiritual person, you should get rid of anger, because anger is absolutely essential. And to really respect anger, and we have to listen to the anger, because the anger has an intelligence that tells us, hey, there's a threat, there's an obstacle, we need to energize and be able to move on. Does that make sense, that it's intelligent? The challenge is that the no button, the anger button, gets jammed. That we start cycling the thoughts of bad other, you know, righteous indignation and so on. And so it keeps getting fueled until it becomes the habit of our body-mind. The neural pathway of anger is overly well-trodden, so to speak. And so we're in a kind of chronic, angry state. And my favorite way of thinking about this um, is the language that a good friend and author, Ruth King, she wrote, Mindful of Race. Um, She puts it this way. She says, anger is not transformative. It's initiatory. It's not transformative. We cannot heal and wake up from anger. Anger has has a really good purpose. It's to energize us, but then we need to be able to move on, to have access to all our resources to be able to make changes. So what happens when the anger button gets jammed? Anger um, and blame creates a kind of armoring. And it's like having a scab that initially you need the scab to heal, to protect a wounded, tender place, but then the scab never falls off. So that's what it's like. Then you never get the air and the healing that really carries you, you know, into being resilient and strong. So... What happens when we get caught in blame and and how do we begin to release it? And one thing is to understand why and how it is that we get so addicted to blame. And you might reflect right now, and I'm just going to invite a brief reflection here. You might close your eyes as you do this. Somewhere where you're carrying a resentment towards someone, where you're carrying blame, that's lasted for a while. And when you get in touch with somewhere where you have felt some resentment or blame and it's lasted for a while, you might ask yourself, what would you have to feel if you put down the sense the other person's wrong or bad? What would you have to do if you no longer were running the narratives of blame? And what, what would... What would be there? What would you have to feel that's difficult to feel? What would you have to then sit with, so to speak? It's 
So you put down blaming this person, then what is it you're stuck feeling? And you can keep reflecting on that. But um, when you're ready, open your eyes. And I'd like just to hear a word from a few different people on what you found underneath that was difficult to feel, under the blame. And just raise your hand, I'll point, and then speak loudly, 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 loudly. Forgiveness. You'd have to feel forgiveness. But what stops you? Anger. Anger. And if you you had to put aside the anger, and you can keep thinking about this, if you had to put aside the anger and the narrative of the anger, what's uncomfortable that you'd have to feel that's difficult? And just keep thinking about it, yeah. Yeah. Their vulnerability, fear, fear. despair, despair. insignificant, insignificant. acceptance there won't be a resolution. You'd have to live with how it is. Yeah. Louder. Realization. Yeah, the powerless to fix it. Yeah. Responsibility. Responsibility. Embarrassment. Embarrassment and shame. that I don't matter. Sadness. Sadness. Grief. Shame. So wait, you're getting a sense of it, right? That underneath the blaming is some very deep vulnerability that we're powerless and significant, feeling shame, feeling hurt, feeling grief feeling vulnerability of all different sorts. How many of you felt that sense of, oh, then it's just going to happen again, and I'm afraid, and yeah. James Baldwin, he writes, I imagine that one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. That's a societal level. You can kind of sense behind the blame that's inherent in racism of making a whole race inferior. What if we let go of that? Wow, there's pain. So we're going to be exploring rain on blame and the reason we hold on so tightly is because there is an exquisite risk we have to take. Remember Mark Nepo? that if we want to free our heart from that armor, we have to be willing to go through those layers of feeling vulnerability. Does that make sense? Okay, I just want to make sure we're all together. Now, there's two important remembrances um, that I want to kind of put out there that are just to keep in the field here. And one is that putting down the armoring of anger, hatred, blame, you're bad, the bad other, basically. Putting down bad other doesn't mean we are condoning, are justifying, are saying, oh, then you're right and I'm wrong. In other words, we're not giving people the green light to do anything. They can, they can be behaving harmfully. Discriminating wisdom could be saying, this is harmful. We're just not going to hate them or make them fundamentally bad for it. In fact... You can forgive someone or release blame and say, never again will I allow that to happen. You can release blame but commit your whole life to trying to make sure that there's something that changes um, to prevent further harm. It may be you decide never to speak to someone again, never to be in the same room, not to vote for them again, whatever it is. But you, you can 
create all the boundaries and wise responses in the world. It's your heart that's no longer squeezed and armored. Okay? So that's, that's what we're talking about. So that's one thing I want to make sure is really clear when we talk on rain on blame. You can let go of, of blame and actually act more intelligently. The second thing is this. You can't force this. Um, the whole understanding with forgiveness is so organic is that you can't will it. You can only be willing. You can have a sense that, wow, there's something that's really important in this and I'm willing, but it's going to have its own timeline. And this is particularly true if you've been traumatized. That if there's trauma, it can actually undermine healing to pay attention to forgiving somebody else. And I learned that the hard way. I, I taught this stuff for years where I was really encouraging, forgiving, 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 until somebody very close to me who had been uh, sexually abused by her brother, and every time she'd come to my Wednesday night class and I'd lead a forgiveness night, and she'd try to forgive him, and she'd end up leaving the class feeling like a failure and feeling even more ashamed of herself than ever, until it became very, very clear that... Um, it creates more unsafety and vulnerability to try to forgive the other that all the attention really needs to be healing the wounded place inside us. So there's a sequence in letting go of blame. And when, it's, when there's been a whole lot of injury, it takes a while to just bring compassion, the reign of compassion inwardly, before we even try to release blame towards another. Does that make sense also? Because I, I'm speaking to you all, my friends, as people in the larger Dharma spiritual community where there's all these noble ideas about how we should be that I think add more shame on the path and um, really don't serve. And one of them is, thou should, should, you should not be angry, you should be forgiving. And um, we really need to bring a lot of compassion to what's going on inside us as a way of preparing the grounds to widen the circles to others. I saw a beautiful example of this uh, in a story by Ruth, uh, by Frank Ostaseski, uh, who many of you know is an amazingly beautiful teacher and being, and he was doing a, um, a workshop in Berlin forgiveness and the woman in the back of the room stood up to talk and she said I've been listening to you talk about forgiveness but my father was a prisoner in the concentration camps and I can't forgive his killers my heart is like ice so the whole room's quiet because the only appropriate response is to bear witness then a woman on the other side of the room raises her hand and, and Frank's kind of preparing for stories about the camps and the grief of the losses. And she said, my heart's like ice too. feels like a stone. My father was a Nazi officer who was a guard in the camps and I know that he killed people. I can't forgive him. Silence. And then these two from other ends of the room made their way through 200 people and they embraced. And they, there were no words, they just held each other. And they knew they weren't alone in their pain. It was like the beginning of a, a deepened 
compassion inwardly. They're not trying to forgive somebody out there at this point. But it was really a step in the direction of widening the circles. Rain on blame, rain with forgiveness uh, can happen. You know, we can, something that's ready to let go, rain helps to soften and release and open right away. Sometimes it takes many rounds. If there's deep, deep injury, it's a life process, as I've been kind of pointing out. It can take many years and require kind of therapeutic support. Um, there's many stages that we have to go through in a way of, of grief and rage and sorrow and fear. And, um, and as I'm saying, saying it's, you can't will it. But I have seen over and over again, when there's a deep intention, it opens the door and the door just keeps on opening more and more. And that's because there's a motivation in all of us there's a, there's a wisdom I've seen or intelligence in all of us that knows that if we have the armoring really, really solid caked on there of anger and of resentment and of blame, that we're not free to love. That it just, it just it's a kind of its own prison. So it's really for the freedom of our own hearts that we bring the compassion inward to heal and then on purpose widen the circles. When we're in the trance of blame, we're cut off from the gold. So of course we want to wake up to that. A woman told a story about her daughter and her in this knockdown, drag-out fight at bedtime hour. And finally... Um, she writes this, about ten minutes ago I put her to bed and through clenched teeth said, I love you Holland, but not another word tonight. You're going to sleep now. I'm done fussing over stuffed animals. Mommy? I paused on the way out the door, literally biting my tongue. I was so frustrated. What is it, Holland? I do have one more thing to say. (laughs) Of course she did. She was standing on the bed with her hands on her hips too. Her hair was wild and she was using her arm to wipe her tears and snot away from her face. Mommy, my three-year-old said, staring me down with venom in her tiny voice, I forgive you. (laughs) Then she laid down and cried and honest to goodness we're a hot man and I didn't know what to do. Baby girl, do you know what forgiveness means? She was still sniffling, her face shoved deep into her little mermaid pillow. Yes, she muttered. I really had to hear this. It means you were wrong and I'm tired of being mad and now I'm going to sleep and my heart won't have a tummy ache. (laughs) That's wisdom. (laughs) We do develop that willingness and we do start taking that exquisite risk because we want our hearts to be free. I mean, you wouldn't have come here today unless something in you wanted to care more, just to feel that warmth and tenderness and love tells me I'm everything, to feel that belonging. So we begin to, that intention, and when we're triggered over and over again, we we begin with the self-compassion before we widen it. And in time, if you keep bringing self-compassion to where you're feeling some sense of woundedness in a relational field, that compassion 
will start including another person. And the key to self-compassion, if you remember from this morning, that ouch moment is when we really sense vulnerability. The metaphor, if you've been listening to my podcast, you'll have heard this probably 10,000 times. It's the best metaphor I know for this is if you're in the woods and you see a little dog under a tree and you go to pet the dog and then it lurches at you and its fangs are bared and, you know, really fierce. And you go from being friendly to being really angry and and scared probably. And then you see that the dog has its paw in a trap. And then you shift again from angry and blaming to, oh, you poor thing. Now, you don't necessarily go and pet it because it could hurt you, but your heart has shifted. And what has shifted your heart is you've seen the vulnerability. And when you can see your own vulnerability, like you you can see kind of with the eyes of, with that soul sadness, how you've been in some way in a trap and, and down on yourself and lost life moments to it, or you can see your vulnerability, how you can just sense from, from way, way back how your, your fear of how other people are going to react to you. If you can sense that, kind of like a witness, but completely in touch, you get tender. When we see a legs in a trap, we get tender. So we see it in ourselves when we bring self-compassion, and what that does is it helps us see it in others. So you can start moving through the world and actually people will act in ways that used to make you really uh, upset or indignant or disgusted and much more quickly you're looking and you're kind of seeing, oh, okay, there's there's suffering there. But it takes time and we first have to make the U-turn. You know what I mean by the U-turn? Where instead of directing our blame and believing our narrative and you're bad and you're wrong, we make the U-turn and we go, okay, here's the wound. Here's what feels bad underneath the blame. Self-compassion, self-compassion. We're bringing basically rain inward. And then we start looking at others through much wiser eyes. Give you a story and then uh, we're going to practice in just a few minutes. I thought I'd share one of one of the stories that really touched me and this one is also in Radical Compassion and I'm aware I'm sharing so many Radical Compassion stories and um, if you bought the book already I think there's still some good stuff in there for you. (laughs) (laughs) So in this story um, this man that I worked with he had a his father was emotionally abusive when he was young very controlling and judgmental and berating and I'm going to pause right now, and I realize I should have told you this. We're not having a break this afternoon. So this is a self-break afternoon. There will be time of questions and this and that, but really, any time biology calls you, um, it's understood. We all understand. (laughs) So, okay. So, emotionally abusive childhood with his father really berating him. He was a real sensitive child, much more like his mother, into you know reading, writing, art. Um, his father, even when he was an adult, his father would come up with all these disapproving, biting remarks and kept him feeling incompetent, like a failure. And around the grandchildren, when he had children, it was still testy and strained and so on. Well, his father had a heart attack. 
and uh, slowed down and had to drop his tennis foursome. And, and he was still very unsympathetic towards his father, still had carried a huge amount of, of anger and dislike. And his sister would say, you know, why can't you be forgiving? You know, he's uh, having a miserable time of it and so on. And his response was, he'll never know how much suffering he caused me. Okay, so he couldn't let go of the blame because if I forgive him, then it's in a way he's right and I'm bad. So he came to a retreat that I led in, uh, on the East Coast. And I asked the question to the group that I asked you. I said, if you let go of the blaming thoughts, what would you have to feel? And what would be under it? And for him, as he reported out when we met, under the anger was hurt. That he, and this is when he did the investigating of rain. I wasn't strong enough, special enough for him to respect me. And then under the hurt, he found, as he investigated, was grief. That I'll never have a father who sees me and cares. That was what, easier to feel angry and blaming than go to that. But that's what he was touching into. And when he could touch into that, I'll never have a father that sees me and cares. That's when he could offer self-compassion nurture, okay? So over and over again through the retreat, his rain process was just that. He'd get angry and he'd let the anger be there and then he'd just feel into those layers of, you know, the, the hurt and the grief and, and that compassion. And he found in the after the rain that he felt a kind of aliveness and empowerment really, that he was really in a space of much more uh, kind of open, back home, he started seeing his father through different eyes. He was able to see more clearly, and he could see really, his father was kind of a bootstrap. He had, he had grown up in a, in a pretty um, non-nurturing household, so he was a, a lonely guy, and his father had been absent, and he admired strength because it was dangerous to be vulnerable. You know, and he was maybe afraid for his son because his son wasn't the kind of strong, at least didn't present that way. So there was a marked shift in their time together, um, loosened up, jokes, small kindnesses, and so on. And then his father had a, a second, much more serious heart attack. And while he was recovering, this man kept him company periodically, you know, because he was local, and he would read to him and so on. And one day he was reading the newspaper to his father, and his father kind of said, stop, stop. He said, I want you to know I'm sorry. I, I wasn't really there for you. And then there's the long silence. And then he heard the words he never thought he'd hear. His father said, you probably don't know how much I love you. And he uh, told me, he said, Tara, by forgiving him, by letting go of the armor, I think it made it safe enough for him to feel his heart. So I'm sharing this story not because if you let go of blame and forgive somebody, they're going to come around and be the person you want them to be. That's not the reason. (laughs) Although, when you let go of blame and your heart becomes more spacious, it has to have an effect. We just don't know how, when, where, what lifetime, etc. You know, just honestly, we don't know. It's for your freedom and to trust that you're connected with all beings, and so it ripples out in some way. 
And that's the whole point, that we can't will it, but if we're willing and we're willing to take the exquisite risk and go ahead and feel what's underneath the blaming, then we can begin to awaken that kind of self-compassion that in some way does widen out to others. So I'd like to practice with you the reign of uh, reign on blame. But maybe first let's stand up and stretch a little bit because everything we're doing requires being embodied. So you might close your eyes and again as we did before just kind of get your feet shoulder width apart. And you might reach up and stretch the heels of your hands up and press the heels up and deepen the breath. Keep stretching. And then just gently allow the palms to float down through the air. Just feel them floating down. And when they're down, you might begin to roll the shoulders forward and up. Inhale. And back and down. Exhale. Inhale, forward and up. Exhale, back and down. Inhale, forward and up. Press up as high as you can. Inhale again. And then exhale. Just allow the shoulders to fall away from the neck. Let them down. Begin shaking your left hand. Just shake, 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 shake. That's it. And you can also start shaking your right hand. And move your arms around a little. This is great if you're in a supermarket and you don't want people to kind of keep a distance. You know, just kind of... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And shake your left leg and your right leg. And this is the time where you might want to jog, move. And um, just know that nobody's looking at you. You can just do anything you want, but really move around. That's it. Shake it all out. Shake, 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 shake. And then, ah, whatever sound wants to come. Ah, ah, Okay. And then stand absolutely still and notice in the stillness how much you can feel. Notice how you gradually, your length can, your breath can lengthen a bit. Feel the aliveness of your body. As we did before, let the feet widen and feel the feet fully on the ground. Soften the backs of the knees. You might put your right hand on your belly, the left hand behind you, and just let the tailbone drop down a little. Let your belly be soft. See if you can feel the breath being received in a softening belly. breathing through the whole torso. 
the arms relax, the palms float down. Again, the shoulders falling away from the neck, the chin tucked back and in a little bit. And feel the whole body standing here. Sense the body is a field of sensation. Begin to notice, if you can, the spaces between the cells. This whole dance of sensation in space. Moving mindfully, gently, and opening your eyes to help you come back to your seats. Begin to settle yourself, come into a seated posture, or we do this meditation together. And as we've been doing today, I'm going to invite you to choose some situation, in this case, a relationship with somebody you care about, with whom you're experiencing some distance, some conflict or tension, where there's some blaming going on. And I wouldn't choose something where there's, uh, you know, a major betrayal or abuse. Probably won't serve you so much as you're practicing this. And to keep in mind in the background that when we're in conflict, we're in a conflict of unmet needs. In other words, there's legs caught in a trap. There's acting out which becomes a kind of a pattern or a dance. But it's a conflict of unmet needs, just to keep that in mind. So choosing some relationship that you'd like to find some more freedom around. Does anybody need more time right now? Begin by sensing your intention. What's your deepest intention in this relationship?
bring to mind a particular incident that is, uh, illustrates or helps you connect with the conflict. An incident where you have felt reactive and felt a sense of the blaming, anger, dislike, whatever comes up. And when you have that incident in mind, see if you can kind of zoom in so that you see the person's face and if there's words being exchanged, remember the words or the tone of voice. Whatever most triggers the reaction in you, what most fuels the sense of anger or blame. And then this is where you make the U-turn, you turn the attention inward, the R of RAIN, recognize what's most predominant that's going on inside you. Most likely it's something like anger or blame or judgment, tightness reaction. And whatever you just notice, whatever you first find as predominant, the attitude is to allow. Can you just let this be right now? Let it be as it is. This is where willingness comes in. This is where you're being willing to help step out of the trance. Just let those feelings be there. And then we begin to investigate. And I invite you to investigate what are you believing about yourself right now? And what are you believing about the other person? Are you believing that they wouldn't act that way if they really respected you or liked you or cared about you? believing that you're not understood, you're not seen? What's the worst part about this? What's most disturbing, most hurtful, most distressing? might ask yourself, what was I hoping for or wanting that didn't happen? If you 
could feel into where you feel most fully in your body, where you feel most vulnerable or upset. And let your body, your posture and your face take on the whole expression of how you're feeling when you're in reaction to this person and what's going on. your facial expression show it. What's the unmet need inside you in this relationship? Is it to feel cared about, respected, that someone else cares about what you care about, understood, important, appreciated, safe. What's the unmet need? You might sense the part of you that really feels most vulnerable and says, what does this place need, most need? What did it want to happen? And as you ask that question, you might, again, as we did earlier, see if you can locate where you're feeling most vulnerable in your body, place your hand there. Now, what did you most need to hear and feel. And is it possible to offer some message, some kindness inwardly that acknowledges that or actually offers that? Can you offer your own care to the part of you that feels unseen or unloved or unsafe? And it helps bring in others, bring in some larger source of loving. Let it wash through you. So you feel nurturing, support coming into you. What's the message this part of you most needs to hear right now? Can you let that message in, let the caring in? Take some moments to sense the presence that's here. In some way you're the holder and the held. Sense the quality of presence and heart.
sense that there's a possibility now of being a kind of intimate witness to the other person so you can begin to bring rain to the other person and if you chose something where there was a deep wound you might need to continue to bring nurturing inward but if you feel ready then you can explore the other person, sensing them and begin to recognize and look at the situation again through the eyes of the caring witness and just notice the other person's reactions what's most predominant what do you most see when you really witness the other person is it their anger, their frustration their confusion, their hurt whatever's there whatever you notice with recognizing allow, just let it be there without making interpretations or reacting that'll let you investigate and you're really looking to see how did this person have their leg in a trap what's the unmet needs they might have had so bring some curiosity now What do you imagine they're feeling? What do you imagine they were hoping for? Some way, how is this person looking for respect or to be seen or loved, understood, appreciated? How did they want to be safe? as you begin to sense how they too had their leg in a trap had unmet needs was hoping for something that they weren't getting perhaps you can bring some nurture some care you might imagine that person having their needs met if they felt loved or respected seen, heard how might they behave or be different? as a way of closing you might just sense who am I when I'm free from blame and perhaps you can sense ways you might respond next time you encounter this situation and have more creativity or choice or resourcefulness sensing the heart space that's more free 
in the midst. So this morning we did the reign of compassion towards ourselves and this afternoon we're doing the reign of compassion towards ourselves and then bringing that more awake space to bring compassion, forgiveness, letting go of blame to others. And what I'd like to do is pause here in our um, doing and speaking and reflecting and, and, and really open it to questions you might have or anything you observed as you did the rain this morning or rain with blame this afternoon. Anything that may have come up, I'd like to take some time for that. We have our um, mics, our mic runners. There's a person with their hand up right up right there. And do keep your hand up when you're asking questions. Hi. Um, this is really interesting for me because... I've been carrying a grudge against someone at work for a really long time who just treats me like the bottom of a birdcage and um, another judgment. And I, I was able to get in touch with my pain and then I was able to imagine some of her situation and how it might bring pain. But then I kept finding my mind going to, I've got to fix this. So what could I do to change the situation? And everything I came up with I feared was a manipulation rather than a, you know, sincere effort on her behalf. Yeah. So I just, I guess my question is, how can you not go there? Where's a better place to go? Well, first, just to honor your, um, the mindfulness and observation of that, because that's what we all do. I mean, the inner controller is ready to step in at a moment's notice. So we even begin to do a meditation that starts softening and opening, and all of a sudden, oh, okay, things look a little better. I, now I can manipulate things. That's just the nature of things. So just be wise to it. Just see that and say, wait, let's, let's spend more time in the contemplative piece of it where you keep on releasing the blame, because it'll come back again. Do, do some rounds of it where you um, really do feel what's hard for you in it and bring real kindness and really get uh, very familiar with how she may deep down have some unmet needs till it becomes more a part of your consciousness. And then your constructive responses will come from a deeper place. You just need more time. See if you can postpone the fixing. Does that make sense? Yes. I, in fact, at the end, I felt like my wiser self said, maybe you need to appro- approach this with curiosity. You know, rather Bingo. Curiosities, that will... Because what curiosity will do is it will keep you investigating and staying with it without trying too quickly to manipulate. That's the best advice. Thank you. Please. 
Hi. I wondered if you could speak a bit more to the difference between uh, discriminatory wisdom and aversive judgment, in part because I can imagine myself telling myself that something is discriminatory wisdom <laughs> when it's a, no judgment. Yeah. It's a really important and good question that we have the capacity out of wisdom to see when things cause harm. That cause-effect is something that's really critical to be observed. It helps us to navigate, you know. Very, very quickly, subtly or not subtly, we will add on a judgment that says bad and wrong. So whenever you sense, and you can feel it in your body when it shifts from that kind of wisdom that sees, oh, when I'm angry, somebody's going to feel defensive, of course, and, you know, I'm bad for being angry or they're bad for being defensive. So feel in your body when, when bad or wrong is there or when should is there. That's another flag, should, bad, wrong. You will feel that you're living in a more confined place. You'll feel it tighter. The body is using somatic testing is usually the way to get out of our rationalizing kind of mind. So thank you for the question. It's, and it's a life path. It's a life practice. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Over there. Thank you. I was just going to go back to um, earlier before our lunch break. <clears throat> I was the person that mentioned the fear around letting my son watch too much TV. So I imagined during the rain process what that shame looked like. And it was very much like hunched over and, you know, ashamed of itself. <laughs> and um, then we went into that process of bringing the, the um, like the light or the, the knowing self and offering love and compassion to this shame self. So that was nice because I could, I could imagine it, I could see it and it was happening. But what didn't happen was the shame would be held, but it didn't change at all. I just wanted to be held, but I didn't feel like, I felt like it was like flopped over in my arms or like wanted to be held like a baby, but couldn't gain any strength to be without me. So that shame place has had decades to build the kind of a kind of constellation of feelings, powerless, badness, and so on that are, if you think of in terms of neuropathways, really deeply grooven. And you're just beginning to create a different relationship with the shame, which is instead of being the shame part and believing all the beliefs, there is more of you that's recognizing the shame and beginning to, from a larger space, begin to hold it. It's going to take many, many rounds of what I call spiritual reparenting. We are actually seeing it and holding it for there to be that kind of transformation where it it is no longer um, the stickiness that pulls your whole identity in, but rather it can become just some sort of an inform, informing you of where you need to pay attention. So I'm, I'm mostly inviting you is, I think just the fact that you could hold and be held to me is like that's a major step a lot of people feel the shame is so toxic that they can't even do that keep going (laughs) yeah thank you 
I don't know where the mic is. So, okay, over here, why don't you just pass it down. I just had a really different experience from this morning to this afternoon. And for rain, when it was evoking feelings of sadness or vulnerability, it was a lot easier for me to go, oh, sweetie, like, yeah. Um, But this afternoon, when it's feelings of, like, anger, when that arises, I feel, like, just sort of this knee-jerk desire to just push that down really fast. And I also see that in in my relationships as a parent and as a partner. So I just was wondering if you could speak to those those differences of when it's harder to hold the feeling. I'm really glad you brought that up because anger is really tricky because we have individual and societal taboos that make us very, very quickly go, anger's here and that's bad. So we're both identified with it and bad for having it. So what I've been doing with anger for the last couple of decades is when, <laughs> when it comes up, <laughs> and so it's still coming up, what I'll do is immediately see it and go, okay, forgiven, forgiven. And that doesn't mean this is bad, but I forgive it. It just means forgiven that this weather system, that the stormy weather system's happening, it's really okay. Like very, very quickly, even if I don't believe that or feel that, I'll just mechanically do that because it's actually truth and truth will eventually win out. So I just say, it's really okay this is here. This belongs. And that itself is a practice and it might take some months for there to be that witnessing and really letting it be there so that if anger can be there and if you don't keep fueling it with the he said, she should and I didn't, but just feel the anger, then you can start sensing what the anger is covering over. Because what I've found in my life is that when I'm angry, um, underneath it is a sense of hurt, fear, powerlessness, some combination. And if I can get into that, then the oh, sweetie starts coming more naturally again. So does that connect for you? Okay, thank you. I think there was somebody else. If you keep the mic uh, and hand it back over to that end, there we go. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to... Um, the nurturance piece, and I'm thinking specifically of working with teens who um, are kind of living through uh, some trauma with parents and stuff and um, wanting to get a little bit clearer on how to, like, build a place of resilience and, like, of safety and love um, that even if you're not getting it from a parent or a friend, um, where to be getting that from. Sometimes the question I'll ask is, when have you felt most safe, comfortable, happy, connected, whatever? Do you ask that question? Do you find out from them what does work for them? It's interesting. I mean, it's so easy to stay in the dark place and focus on the dark things. And I think that it's also easy for me to forget to ask that question. So, For all, for all of us. And so... In doing the RAIN work, and you'll find this a lot in Radical Compassion, I spend a lot of time talking about how to build positive resources. And we absolutely have to. I mean, it's, you know, it's important that we can enter into the darkness, but we have to have enough resilience and enough safety and so on. And so part of the inquiry, both that we are asking ourselves 
and that we're asking if we're working, if we're a therapist or working with children, is what does work so far? And what I found is, even with the people that have the worst backgrounds in the sense of super, super painful attachment disorders, very little experience of any belonging, there's still some tendril of something of where they find some respite, where they find some comfort. And again, it might be a dog, it might be a tree, it might be certain music, it might be a certain place for them, but find whatever it is where there's some sense of belonging and ease, and then you build that. And you keep, and the way you build it is to have a person imagine it and then feel as much as possible the feelings and stay in the somatic sense for 15 to 30 seconds. So they, it really sinks in. It gets into the implicit memory. There's a whole understanding that we're, you know, Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones, you know. And what that means is that we if we got bitten by a dog and we met, we had a hundred experiences with a dog and one time we got bitten by a dog, that's, the, the fear is going to lock in. So you need, when there's the positive experiences, to really install them by repeatedly remembering them, feeling the feelings, really saturating yourself in them. So I'm kind of going through the steps, but this is kind of more written out in the book and that's with the teens. Get them in touch with where things work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I um, found myself this morning um, um, after, you know, finding particular words or, or whatever for um, a conflict uh, with someone. I, I moved beyond that and felt like I was going deeper and beyond the, the words just putting my hands and finding us sitting in those hands mm. with no and and the image for me was kind of powerful as but it was it was not um it was beyond the the the, the where I was struggling with words I love that you're bringing this in because we often get locked into oh the meta meditation you say these phrases or self compassion you offer these phrases and Communication and words is really, really powerful, but so is images and so is the energetic sense of things. So to explore, experiment and sense what comes up in terms of images, energy, everything, they're all expressions of reality. So I love that you did that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So if you want to come up and get it, in the, keep your hand up, get the mic there, and if there's a mic in somebody else's hands, please speak. Yeah. My question is whether the practice of RAIN uh, has another dimension when you start to deal with broader anger or emotion associated with systems. That's Um, actually where we're going. Great. Um, And thank Thank you. you. Because... We so often on the path stick with the individual level and um, so much is both expressed through the societal and systemic level and and that creates the individual. So to look wider is necessary. Um, We'll be covering just a little bit, but it's absolutely part of the domain. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if you could speak a little more to the discriminatory wisdom and some of um, creating conscious boundaries, like when that makes sense, and then how do you hold sort of the open heart in the separateness that those boundaries create? Yeah, yeah so this is, this is one of those rubber-hits-the-road dicey questions because there's not like a formula to it, but it's a really important question that when there's been violation and harm, we have to bring self-compassion, we have to find boundaries, we want to gradually be able to let go of the aversive blame. Sometimes we have to create the boundaries even when we're feeling the blame and sometimes they feel like they're pushing away and that's okay, we have to do what we have to do to be safe. But our end, end is the right word here, um, if we don't keep going then it becomes initiatory, not transformative. So to go ahead and create the boundaries, but keep being honest with ourselves if our hearts are in a knot. It's as one teacher said, um, to be free to not push anyone out of our hearts. So it's more about intention. To keep the intention for our freedom and all beings' freedom, to not lock into that, but go ahead and do what we have to do to take care of ourselves. I hope that's helpful for now. There isn't, there's not a good formula. Yeah. Hi. I'm wondering how this process might be different if you're talking about trauma with a group of people or even, unfortunately, maybe multiple groups of people and trauma in different ways. Um, sometimes I sort of feel paralyzed about how to start unpacking all of that when there's so many dynamics and individuals, but also the group dynamic, and when there's so much, how do you move forward? Yeah, so this is a very similar question to systemic level, that when we're dealing with groups, societal level, systemic level, injury and reactivity, how do we begin to work with it? And um, maybe... uh, let me try to get to that. I've, I'm, this is where we are going. I'm going to look at this some. Um, I'll just say a little bit, but I don't want to be too abstract, which is that still individually we need to know how to create a clearing to pause and to be with, as individuals, we need those skills of how to be with the vulnerability inside ourselves. We also need to have processes of dialogue and proximity where we can... Um, Nonviolent communications is a good example where groups can speak with each other and there can be the naming of this is the feeling, this is the need, and the intention to meet the unmet needs of the other. So compassion comes up in groups of different people when there's enough willingness to stay in the dialogue that you can see how on a group level the leg is in a trap, the hurting of the other group, and that each group needs to be able to see that in the other for there to be a positive spiral that comes out of it. And one of the inspirations for me has been Ruby Ruby Sales, a civil rights activist, and she's done a whole lot of work and experienced the chronic spiral of blaming between groups. And so she said her work changed at one point. She went she was getting her hair done and her hairdresser's daughter had come in after a long night on the streets 
and she and she saw her and she saw that she was having you know that she was pretty miserable and she said to her where does it hurt she asked that question and this young woman shared with her stuff she had never shared with her mother and for ruby that became the inquiry to look into racism and look into classism and all sorts of other issues in contemporary america and she came out of it with the sense of being able to look at uh, the white person's spiritual disease of you know what makes white people hold on to white supremacy and racism and in a way that had her heart more open and part of conversations where you could really have people ask each other where does it hurt and see into the group dynamic as well as the individual. I don't know if that helps at all to touch on it, but it's that kind of inquiry where we begin to see beyond the mask but on a group level that can begin to widen the circles. So I want to, I want to check in with you because is there another layer to your question that you'd like to bring in? The layer might actually be a little bit smaller than maybe, maybe group wasn't quite the right word for me, but more friendship groups, smaller groups. Okay. Um, where there might be a long shared history and then all of a sudden a trauma where the friendships have been severed and it's sort of a group is on one side and then there's an island of one on the other side. Um, so how, how to navigate that group dynamic? A group dynamic where there's been a severing in a group, a small group of friends that have fallen apart and how do you begin to heal the divide there? Right, right, right. It would take um, a will that everybody is willing to have, play, have the exquisite risk to engage. It would take a container where somebody was able to guide it so that people felt safe enough. And then it would take people being able to share where their wound was, not in a blaming way, but in a vulnerable way. Those are the elements. Same thing with couples. When there's couples are, you know, there's a severing. It, are you willing? Do we have a safe container? And are we willing to name the vulnerability? Yeah. So I um, just want to keep track of time because I want to make sure we have uh, a chance to... I see somebody up front. Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> so um, I want to express gratitude to yourself and everyone here and particularly to those other uh, male-identified people. The paucity of us in these contexts is uh, painful to me. And as I look into it this morning, mostly, it was uh, a sense of isolation, um, not belonging, and, uh, you know, some sort of, like, yearning. And so within that is a a question that I imagine you've asked yourself about the... uh, about the gender imbalance of of, uh, human beings that are uh, willing to... um, actually spend this much time not fixing anything or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's a very painful, uh, isolating um, experience. I've, I've retired and have availed myself to the untraining in various other contexts. And I've arrived at these being the only man. And uh, I wonder if you have some way uh, to fix that. (laughs) Well, let me ask you a question. What do you imagine 
um, for, first of all, you've just named it, and I'm wondering if what it's like right now for you to have just named it out loud, and if we kind of collectively allow in this group setting right here, just as a group right now, if we allow that experience to be here, and you allow it to be here, you've named it and allowed it, what that's like. There's a shadow of judgment that this isn't what men do. So that's the shadow of judgment that in some way reflects on you personally. Yeah. I mean, that's what I can feel, that. Yeah, yeah. And the part of you that then has some beliefs and feelings around that uh, how you are is not the way a man is supposed to be, that part of you, what, what does that part most need right now? What does that part need to remember or know or trust? What, what happens is that I end up with a uh, um, a smile that also feels like kind of an arrogant smirk. Okay. You know, like, fucking this is what men are supposed to be doing and what's the matter with you. Okay, so you go, when you get in touch with that more vulnerable place that says maybe something's wrong with me because I'm not doing what men should be doing, then you flip to know it's wrong with other guys who aren't, they don't know how to do this. So you put yourself, you inflate rather than deflate. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Feels better, easier? <laughs> uh, for a moment. And, that, and then that sense of isolation and not belonging. I don't belong with the women and I don't belong with the men. Okay, so the place in you that feels isolated and not belonging is looking back at another man right now. (laughs) And what does that place actually, what would comfort that place in in a healthy healing way right in this moment? I mean, just... I, I really don't know. Okay, so that's the inquiry that's an important inquiry is what is that place most need. Now one thing you could say is, well, I need for more men to show up. And yeah, that's on on a group, we could talk about this on the societal level of masculine feminine, but in an immediate way, there's also a personal issue of um, feeling like there maybe there's something wrong with me and I'm feeling isolated. And on that level, it's really important to sense, well, what would bring more sense of belonging or connection? And to to keep asking that and to let yourself feel the isolation and to ask that and feel the isolation and ask that. Okay. Now, I want to hold where we are right now here because I look around and, and I see that there's a real minority of men. We're doing a compassion challenge. I think there's 96% women or something like that. It just kind of blew me away. You know, 
I'm also looking around and realizing, and this is not just this moment, seeing how few people of color are here and feeling the um, courage of people of color to be here in the minority or, you know, given our society and my gratitude and, and sorrow that it's like it is. So it's that too. I also um, sense the spirit rock. There's a, a classist thing that goes on. It's harder to get out here. It's harder to... The whole thing and the costs. Um, so there's... If I, I have a feeling if I invited different people that for different reasons felt a sense of not belonging that we'd hear a number of different voices here and I'm wondering how many of you can relate to that that you can feel a sense of where your voice might come up in that one can I see by hands where you might feel a sense of, if you don't mind just look around with the hands up just look around and I wonder if as a group right now because I'm going to say that there's at least 30-40% of hands just went up and now just to close your eyes because this is a really important moment probably as important as anything we could do today just to sense yourself in a field with others and you might be part of the 30-40% or the 60-70% but that the way our society is divided lands up that we feel this not belonging feeling and that that is the suffering, the suffering of not belonging. And we started the day with that kind of welcoming and honoring whatever is going on inside us. And I wonder if this moment what happens if you just feel in your heart, if you raised your hand, that you're holding yourself and all who raised their hand in your heart. And if you didn't raise your hand, that you're holding all that raised their hand in your heart. And who would we be if we really sensed that everyone here belongs and that we belong? Like what would, what would be the experience of this group if we really trusted our shared belonging? And wouldn't that be creating the world we believe in? Wouldn't that be what it is? that if we really trusted our belonging and felt each other, we all belong, wouldn't we be creating that in this moment? So taking a few deep breaths and I'm wondering as we open our eyes if there's anybody else in the room that would like just to say a word or a sentence about your experience to do with belonging or not belonging just so we can hear it in the room. 
There's a hand up there. And, and again, just a sentence, a word or a sentence, so we can hear from others too. Over here. We have one person here, yeah. Testing. So the feeling that came up when we just did this exercise of, you know, holding everyone in my heart was we can do it together. We can get through it together. Thank you. Thank you. Person over here. Hello. I work in a field where frequently I am the only woman. And I was seeing how being here, I am in the majority, or people who look like me are in the majority, and how different the experience was for me, that my heart was naturally open, and how when I am in my field, a lot of the times, my heart is guarded and closed. And I was wondering if I could bring this sense of openness there, and how that would change my perspective, and how I kind of experienced other people. Thank you. Thank you. Others? I don't know where the... Yeah, there's somebody right there in the middle. I consider myself a very compassionate person, but I found myself um, feeling like I was in the belonging group, I guess, and I, um, I had emptiness where I thought that a tremendous compassion should be for the people who raised their hands. And so that was a great cause for self-examination to how tightly I wanted to hold on, I think, to that sense of belonging. Um, And I didn't want to face the vulnerability of others because that would make me face my own fear Mm. of not belonging. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I, I just wanted to say that having experienced in the earlier parts of my life a great deal of a sense of not belonging. Much of my work has been about embracing Mm. and assisting others to feel belonging. And I find challenge in my later life, (sighs) keeping balance. Mm. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to like nine different elementary schools because our family kept moving and moving and moving and I don't belong. So that's a real powerful example of how very early on we don't have a way to root and what that creates even at at this time in our lives. Thank you for naming it out loud. Yeah, anyone else on just feeling belonging or not belonging? And I would like to invite anybody that has not spoken that would be willing to share. Yeah. When I was holding everyone and envisioning, we were all sunflowers. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hello. Oh. Thank you. Uh, when you said to think about being in a field, um, it made me think like everyone at some point feels like they don't belong. And in the inverse of that is that if everybody doesn't belong, then everybody does belong. <laughs> And I thought that that was really nice. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to keep going, but I want to come back and and thank you because I think you brought us all to 
in um, some deeper way honesty right here in this room. And I think that's what counts. It doesn't fix it, but it deepens our awareness of it. And that is part of the healing. And I feel you have something to say. So where's the mic? Oh, you don't? You're... Okay. You always do. (laughs) We all want to feel welcomed. We all want belonging. There's a a beautiful story of a man who left home. He had argued with his mother and father the day before he left. This is written by Scott McClanahan. They spoke horrible words, violent, violating words. He left without even saying goodbye. He got many years, even spent time in jail. Years later, he got out of jail. He wondered if his parents were alive, if they were ashamed of what had passed between them and of where he had wound up. He wrote to them and told them he'd be coming home on a specific day the following week. And if they wanted to see him and were not ashamed, they should put a blanket on the clothesline. He would know to come inside. If the blanket was missing, then he'd know he was not welcome. He would know to turn back. He told them he hoped they were in good health. The man arrived by rail the next week. He was nervous when he stepped off the train. There was no one there to meet him. He walked up the worn path towards the home place and thought about the past. He thought about his time in jail. He thought about how ashamed his parents must have been. He thought about the horrible words they spoke. He was just about to turn around and go back to where he came from when he saw a blanket in a tree. He kept walking and then he saw another blanket. He kept walking, he saw another, and then he turned towards home and the house was covered in blankets. The yard was covered in blankets. The clothesline was covered in blankets. The path to the door was covered in blankets. His parents were standing there and they were welcoming him inside. When I first heard that story, just what occurred to me is that every one of us needs blankets put out to remind us that we're welcome. I mean, we none of us have perfect ways of coming through our family of origin, and we're in a culture where there is so much sexism that goes in both directions in different ways, and there's so much oppression and racism and so on that there's no one that's exempt. If we, every person here had done a sharing, there's every one of us is at times of feeling not belonging. Every one of us. And then there's some really beautiful sharings about the resistance to going back into that feeling. There's a reason we hold so tightly to white privilege. I mean, it's really, really hard to let ourselves open to what's underneath that, but there's no way around it if we want to feel that others are real and that we truly belong. I have a practice I started a while ago where I'll see somebody that is different from me or that I don't know out on the roads, you know, stranger, and I will just mentally um, meditate, we are friends. I'll just have that as my my meditation. And immediately it comes true on some level, (laughs) you know. Because on some level I'm remembering the gold. And I do that with people that look really different from me and that I feel like I, could, I would be conditioned to not like. 
And I also do it with beings that I like, that I forget. And I also do it when I'm walking um, out in the woods. I'll say, we belong to a tree, we are friends to a tree. Because the moment that I say that, there's more of a realness, of beingness, of what's there. But the pain that is created is that unless we're in proximity and really pay attention to another being, there is a sense of unrealness. And especially when we're, cult- when we're culturally conditioned to look for difference, because that's what happens. I mean, for millions of years, we lived as hunter-gatherers, and anybody that was different from our group was an enemy and a threat, and we gave them a name, an epithet, that meant less than human. Millions of years, that's how it went, with anybody different. And then about 10 to 20,000 years ago, we had this brain spurt where we actually advanced in language, we became more collaborative, and our caring extended beyond kin. We actually had this capacity to widen the circles of caring. And that's continued to be the trajectory, and we very, very quickly regressed back into other is enemy. Very, very quickly. So, really, when I think of us together gathering with the intention to widen the circles of caring, what's required is to become intimate with our inner life. Wow. Jesse, are we okay? Do we need a new battery? (laughs) I'll keep talking, right? Okay. Um... So what we need to do is we make, we make unreal other out of our inner life, a bad other inside. We need to heal that. We need to do it where it's obvious, wherever we're blaming and judging people in our personal life. And then we need to widen the circles wherever, on some level, we have contracted into unreal other out there. And it takes getting close in. It takes proximity. Um, I read about this group called Building Bridges that brought together Palestinian and Israeli teens. And I love the stories because initially you could feel all the animosity and then over a couple of weeks' time, because they're in proximity, they become real. And one quote from one uh, of the teens, if I don't know you, it's easy to hate you. If I look in your eyes, I can't. So my sense in cultivating radical compassion is that if we're going to see past the mask, we have to actively extend ourselves to people we don't normally pay attention to. And what I mean by that is we primarily hang out with people that vote like us and we primarily that have the same beliefs as us and so on. We need to be able to widen the circles. And what we find is that um, we are often, without even knowing it, living in a trance where the other has become purely um, a being in a mask, that, and we're just seeing the mask. And I want to share with you, we're going to do um, a closing, a two-part closing meditation. But I want to share with you a story, if you've been around me for a while, you'll, you'll remember it, but it's like one of those poems that it keeps on teaching me, so I share it when I can. And I want to tell you the background to it, which is that I was, uh, my family would always, we 
grew up Unitarian, and, and on Christmas Eve we'd go to church together. And uh, we went with a family. One, the young, the teenage son of the family who um, I knew had always had a hard time, and he was totally a person that did not belong. He was always on the margin. He was had a lot of social anxiety, and he was just considered different. But it was with a, an aversion. And he sat next to me at the Christmas Eve uh, sermon and gathering. And the minister shared this story, and this is a story from a Unitarian minister of traveling uh, during Christmas Day with her husband and with her two children. And they stopped in in a diner uh, to get something to eat. And there were only a few people there. And her one-year-old named Eric was in a high chair, and suddenly Eric squeals with glee. Hi there, two words he thought were one. Hi there. His face was alive with excitement. And then she says, I couldn't take in the source of his merriment. I couldn't take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, baggy pants, both they and the zipper at half-mast over a spindly body, gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed, unwashed, and his hands were waving the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi there. Every call was echoed. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric. He pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, Why me? under my breath. Our meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, Do you know patty cake? Attaboy, you know peekaboo? Hey, he looks, he knows peekaboo. We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. Finally, we'd had enough. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I headed toward the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him and any air he might be breathing. As I did so, Eric, all the while, with his eyes riveted to his best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for me, arms spread wide. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, Would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer, since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the man's. (laughs) Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his voice opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding voice, You take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. 
I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. So this was shared at, at church and um, I was crying, but even more so, the teen, young teen, uh, was next to me crying. And he looked at me and he said, that was me. And um, what was going on for me was the sense of how many beings have I not seen That was the pain for me. You know, how many beings that I made into an unreal other, a bad other, just a not important other, you know, it doesn't matter, but an other. And um, it woke up in me a longing to unfold and trust uh, my belonging with all beings. And and the, the challenge, of course, is daily forgetting, daily every day. That's the trance. But this is what's possible for us. And we speak, we're speaking today of, you know, the way that when we get in trance, we are operating off of a hierarchy. That's for millions of years. Again, humans, you know, we, we humans have always had a hierarchy, you know, where, um, there's the pecking order and there's the superior and the inferior And as long as we have that, we can't truly experience a sense we are friends. We can't truly experience it. And one of the most painful places we have a hierarchy is with other species that we consider non-human animals as uh, less valuable or less sacred and uh, don't connect the dots, you know, in terms of the way we eat and the massive amount of suffering that's going on every minute in our backyard where animals live unnaturally short lives and are, are killed for our diets. So for the sake of our own feeling of belonging and for the sake of not being cruel to other animals, for the sake of not being cruel to other people from different castes or races or religions or anything, we are friends, we belong and we need to remember it. So I'd like to, um, we're going to close, as I mentioned, with these two meditations. And one of them, the first one, is kind of the rubber hits the road on being able to see past the mask. And um, there's a documentary that was taken in Berlin, and it was taken of uh, people from Berlin, each one was paired with a refugee and they sat with each other and they looked into each other's eyes and you could watch over a period of five minutes how the layering fell away and they went from kind of awkward, self-conscious, etc. to a sense of the pure sense of belonging and tenderness. And one of the most powerful ways that we can wake up 
our sense of uh, seeing the gold is by being in proximity and really paying attention to each other. So that's, we're going to start with that and then we're going to uh, then include in a loving-kindness practice that is particularly beautiful. So to close, we're going to need you in silence again to find a partner, if you will. And if you could stay in silence as you do this, and if you find that nobody around you is, everybody's already paired up, raise your hand or stand up so you can find each other quickly, okay? Okay, if we can stay on silence. If you're looking for a partner, raise your hand. I see one person over here. I see one person over here. Um, Keep raising your hand. Did you find somebody? Oh, good. Um, In the back of the room, anybody else looking for a partner right now? You found each other. Anybody else? Scanning around, scanning around. What I didn't say and I should have said is anything we ever do on any of my day-longs or retreats is optional. And I didn't say that, and I actually apologize. I don't mean that lightly because um, I highly encourage this, but, of course, if you don't want to, and, of course, many people... Some, I know with my mother, she used to come to uh, workshops and retreats, and when I'd start leading something she knew was a little edgy, she'd <laughs> leave the room. But, but she actually started staying, which was kind of cool, too. So. Okay, um, in this first exercise, there's no going first or going second, but in the second one, there will be. So how about the person with the shortest hair will go first when we get to that exercise? Okay, for this first one, what's needed is that you're angled in a way that you can look into each other's eyes. That's what's needed. So, moving chairs around. For the handful of people that have opted to do this um, on your own, um, you can do this and imagine that you're looking into somebody's eyes that you know, and it's actually a very, very beautiful practice. So I just want to invite that and honor your choice. So you start with closing your eyes. And let yourself come into your body awareness. And when I say that, you might begin by uh, in sensing what wants to let go a little, what might have tightened in a habitual way, and scan down your body a little and just sense what can let go. Maybe let your shoulders fall away from your neck, let them kind of relax back and down a bit, and then let the awareness fill your shoulders and see if there can be a natural kind of melting or dissolving there. Softening, loosening. 
Let the hands be soft. Feel the tingling and vibrating in the hands. Let your chest be open. And relax the belly. Soften the belly. See if you can again sense the breath being received deep in the torso. The breath in a softening belly. might imagine and feel and sense this whole body breathing, even in a cellular way. Expanding and then deflating. You can deepen the relaxing by softening the eyes. You almost sense the eyes and the smile, the outer corners lifted some, the brow smooth. Slight smile at the mouth. Let the inside of the mouth smile. Let the felt sense and spirit of a smile spread through the heart. Let that inform and come alive through the rest of the body. There can be some sense of lightness and openness, ease. Bring the body moment to moment. Body then here. As you're ready now, taking a nice full breath. And gently opening your eyes looking into each other's eyes. And if as you do, kind of monitoring, witnessing your own, how you're feeling, you might feel some discomfort or an urge to laugh or look away and and just note it, you know, recognize and allow embarrassment. Have some patience and gentleness. And mostly curiosity. into your partner's eyes because you may never have the opportunity to look in this way at this particular human being again. We're going to explore the qualities of the gold of the awakened heart that we've been really reflecting on today. And the beginning is just to really look into these eyes and become aware of the beauty that's behind there. The consciousness that's looking out at you. You might sense what's sometimes called original goodness, kind of that purity of being and this person's capacity for love, gifts and strengths born into this being. Behind these eyes are unmeasured reserves of courage, of intelligence, the resilience and humor, creativity and wonder that this being loves beauty. The great gifts, some of which this person may be unaware. You can see them and sense them most deeply, maybe the wisdom that's here and the compassion. 
as you look into these eyes to see that, that original goodness, that purity, really that Buddha nature, you can feel a natural will-wishing arise, that they be well and safe. that this being really be free to live from and trust that gold, that Buddha nature. Sense your wish in your own words, whatever most resonates right now as you're looking into these eyes. Know that what you're experiencing is loving kindness. It's a kind of a flavor, a shine of the gold, and it's warm and immediate to the heart. Just rest in that. You might close your eyes for a few moments and feel the field of loving kindness that you've been really resting in. Stay connected with your body, your heart. And opening your eyes again. And then looking again deeply into your partner's eyes. And opening to the measure of pain or sorrows that are there as well. These are the burdens that like all beings this being carries. Knowing their mortality. The fear of loss. Body and mind. Loss of others that this being like yourself has had the kind of disappointments and failures that stay in the memory and knows loneliness, knows what it's like to feel separate, knows hurts beyond the telling. So let yourself open this being's hurts, hurts that maybe they've never told another sometimes called the ocean of tears, the wounds, the insecurities. You can't fix their pain, but you can bring that gentle and courageous presence. You can witness this being's humanity and the suffering as you do And know as you do that, that you're experiencing the great heart of compassion that's so essential to the healing of our world. You might imagine, just as you would to any frightened child or other wounded being, how how your heart energetically reaches out to this being. How your heart sees the courage they carry. and wishes them in a deep way a healing, a freeing. And finally, you might take another full breath, continue to be looking into this being's eyes, let your awareness drop deep, deep, like a stone below the level of what words can touch. It's to that that deep web of connectedness and consciousness that underlies all life. 
behind these eyes see the consciousness that lives through the spirit that's timeless the same awareness that looks through your eyes as you rest gazing at this mystery of of oneness seeing deeply behind these eyes as they see in yours just sense who are we really Becoming the one who knows the pure, vast awareness that's really the source of creation. Rest in in the pure spirit, the pure knowing, this field of being. Who are we really? Not the body or the thoughts, not the small sense of self. Seeing with timeless eyes the secret beauty of every being and resting in this mystery, this field of loving awareness. Trust it, relax into it, it is your home. Closing your eyes, taking a few full breaths. And I invite you to do in kind of a a whisper, you're going to have to lean in, is just share with your partner a little bit of what that was like for you. We'll take the next few minutes to do that, but try to keep the quietness in the room as you share. Just take turns and make sure you each hear from each other what that was like.
What's that? Oh no. Make sure both of you share. We've got one more minute. Make sure each of you has shared. Thank you. Okay, this next one, you're still going to be, this is part two. You're still with your partner and you actually need to be leaning in towards your partner for this next one too. You're going to be speaking a little bit more. If there's anybody that didn't do the first one as well into this next one, it's a, it's, this is um, really a lovely practice. I see a couple of people that aren't matched up. If you'd be willing to do it, I think you'd enjoy it. Are you willing? Can I... Are you willing to do a, do one? It, it's a real it's a real sweet one. <laughs> do, are you are you up for trying it out? Okay. Are you two okay to being? Thank you very much. Anybody else that didn't do the first but's up for this one? It's less edgy, I promise. <laughs> In fact, I wouldn't get away with any more edgy. So. <laughs> okay. So here's how this goes. Um, this is really one of my favorite metta meditations in the world. The nature of, of loving kindness is appreciation. And so um, what you're going to be doing is a repeating question. And uh, first, the person we, we decided with the longest, shortest hair was going to go first? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so going first means that you're going to be responding to a question. And your partner is going to ask you, please tell me, what do you love? And then you're going to respond. And your response is, is either a word or a sentence. It's not like a dissertation on what you love. You're just going to say something, okay? <laughs> There's a little something. And then your partner will say thank you or bow and just pause for a moment. Please tell me what do you love. And then you'll say something and your partner will say thank you or bow, pause. Please tell me what do you love. So it's going to go on like that for a few minutes until I tell you to switch sides, okay? Now, if you're asking the question, you can keep your eyes open. If you're responding, some people like to close their eyes just to kind of get in touch with what they love. And you might say, I mean, it could be anything. Like if I'm, if somebody's asking me, and I often will model it first, you know, I might say, you know, I love walking at sunrise by the river. Thank you. You know, I love being in a group when there's a sense of us waking up together. I love chocolate velvet ice cream. <laughs> and so it could be anything really from, you know, your, your favorite flavor of something to God consciousness to anything between. The deal is give yourself permission to say whatever comes up, you know, and you'll have a 
monitor, critic that's going, you know, am I doing this right? But say, thank you very much, no thank you, and come back to it, okay? Um, Just see what happens. So we'll do that for a few minutes, one side asking, the other responding. Make sure there's a pause between, that it's not just this barrage of a question. And then we'll shift sides. Um, any questions? Because if you, if there's something you're wondering about, others will wonder also. Please tell me what you love, but it, what you love might be a person. I love my, I love my son Narayan. I love, yeah, it could be a person, an experience, whatever comes to mind. The first person is the re, the. Res, the person with short hair is the first person that gets to share what they love. Any other questions? <laughs> okay, coming into silence, closing your eyes as a way to start. And know that if you're asking the question, it's actually a, a real invitation. It's an intimate invitation and to hold a space for your partner of kindness and safety. And if you're responding, as I mentioned, give yourself permission. Okay, please open your eyes and begin.
Please finish what you're saying and then come into silence and close your eyes and take a moment in the silence to sense your body, your heart, your presence. few moments you're going to be shifting roles so if you were asking the question now you have a chance to respond and to really speak from your heart whatever comes up and if you are responding this is the time to invite forward your partner and hold that space of care for them so okay open your eyes and beginning again
please finish whatever you're saying and again close your eyes and come into silence coming into silence closing your eyes and with some curiosity just notice your experience right here and now a reflection for both of you to bring to mind one thing you said you loved person, experience, whatever it is just bring to mind something that's very poignant and real and alive for you right now and sense what really uh, what makes this experience so meaningful to you what really brings up the loving what's the goodness that brings up the loving in this letting go of whatever the object of the loving is and just sense the loving itself just be the loving let it be as full as it is sensing the, the boundless quality of it the tenderness of it and how much is included in it from the radiant sutras there is a place in the heart where everything meets go there if you want to find me Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a steady regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing I belong here I am at home here once you know the way the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing I belong here I am at home here As you're ready, I'd like to invite you to open your eyes and in silence, however you'd like, to thank and acknowledge and appreciate your partner in silence. And then, if you will, to come turning around and we have our our mics and take a few minutes... um, Especially for those that might not have have had their voice in the room, 
Um, anything that you discovered, anything you learned or discovered in these final heart meditations uh, this afternoon that you'd like to share, any takeaways, uh, just raise your hand and we will get the mic to you. There's a hand over here. Yeah. I don't think it is. I'm tapping. Am I on? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Hi. I'm in the middle. If you're spe- oh, there you are. Hi there. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just staring into um, a total stranger's eyes made me feel super vulnerable and. It made me realize why I have so many strategies of othering. It's way too intense to be that intimate with the whole world. So anyway. Yeah. And that's really an amazing insight, too, to realize how intense it is when we really pay attention and how deep the conditioning is up too much. So just to know that. Yeah, thank you. Others? Yeah. In that last exercise of about what we love, um, one of the first things that came to my mind is um, my son, who's been in recovery for a year from addiction. And um, every day I just feel so grateful and so much love for him. And I loved when you, um, when you broadened that out to, that, to focus on that one thing and then just have it be the love and, and not have it be about the object and... I just am so grateful for that because um, it's just so huge. And I really appreciate that. I've never thought about that before. So thank you. Thank you for naming that because that is the key, um, a key kind of awakening or opening when you realize that the particular person or experience is a portal to the loving field that's, that's here and a precious sacred portal and yet the loving includes so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure where the mic is or if you have your hands up, if anybody wants to speak, there's a person over here. So I was surprised that um, my ex-husband was one of the things that I love. (laughs) I think we'd both be surprised by that. We've been divorced for about 10 years. Um, and I didn't think of until it was over my daughter who's really struggling and she's um, just in such a hard place and I know that consciously I do love her and she's really hard to love right now so that's interesting right ex-husband yes daughter no yeah and 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 I'm first of all I want to appreciate you naming that in the room that you know the difficult to love doesn't mean we don't love, but it's part of compassion to know that it's, okay, it's difficult, my heart needs some time to soften in that way. So that's part of the waking up. Yeah, thank you, dear. Thank you. Yeah, yeah in the back. Thank you. Uh, in the last meditation, when we were invited to explore love and what we love, it was so wonderful. And it, I, what brought it, it, I remembered figure skating as a child in Chicago, 
which I've loved. And I remembered that my father was the one who took me to Lake Ellen every winter and instilled that love. And then I remembered that it was the last conversation we had when he was in the hospital. We reflected on it and remembered it. And then right after that, he asked, Is, would it be okay if I rested for a while? And he closed his eyes and we said, I love you. And that was it. But what it made me realize is that he is still with me every day and in this room. And mm. thank you for that. Mm. Mm. And I'm an only child and both my parents died. So not being alone is kind of a big thing for me. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. I got paired up with a partner that I didn't, who I didn't know, and um, I was a little scared. And um, I appreciated so much her long list of things that she loved, and we really had a lot in common. Um, and it was really kind of a treat becoming close, intimate, with this woman who I've never met and I will never see again. <laughs> that, I love what you're saying because it is so powerful. I mean, what a que how often do we ask that question to somebody? Hey, what do you love? You know, and yet it, it brings out the gold. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there was somebody over here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the kind of the intensity and discomfort that I felt, I really kind of felt it in my body. So I kind of was no, kind of doing rain a little bit through that. Um, and kind of at one point I kind of just like faded out what you were saying and I was just like, you're okay, you're okay. Everything's gonna, like, you're okay, you're loved. And it really helped me like stay with, stay in the zone. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. I think that's great that you listened to yourself and knew that you needed that kind of nurturing and soothing and calming and that that was really the gift of kindness that would allow you to stay. I think that's perfect. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right up here. Yeah. Thank you. Doing the what do you love actually made me question whether I really know what love is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I got kind of judgy about it, saying like, well, you know, my friend who I did it with, you know, she would like, she loved better things than I did. <laughs> did anyone else start judging themselves about loving? Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, that judge is not very far away. And so all the more reason to just let that be a question. You know, what does it mean to love? And what do I love? And when I'm loving, really, who am I? So we're gonna, I'm going to actually let that be the segue because we're, we're close to closing here. And thank you for your honesty. It's always refreshing. It's like we, there's no certain kind of experience we're supposed to have. Just to know that, you know, and back to evolution, we have a negativity bias that has us fixate on what's wrong. So even when we look towards what we love, we can look towards what's wrong about what we love, and that happens, you know. <laughs> and part of evolving ourselves is both to be courageous and take the exquisite risk, bringing rain to the places where it's difficult, and also to remember the beauty and the goodness. 
you know, we get really fixated. There's a story about a young monk who arrives at the monastery and he's assigned to uh, copy the old canons and the laws of the church by hand. He notices everybody's copying from copies. So he goes, oh my gosh, you know, there could be a mistake in, one of the, in the original manuscript and that would just be carried on through the centuries. So he goes to the abbot and the abbot says, well, you've got a point. We've been copying from copies for centuries. Um, I'll go and look at the original manuscript that's in the vault in the deep, deep cellar under the monastery. So he disappears. The abbot goes down there. Hours go by. Nobody hears from the abbot. So finally the young monk gets worried and he goes down into these into the vault to see what's going on. <clears throat> the old abbot is banging his head against the wall and crying uncontrollably. And the, the young man says, well, what's wrong, father? And the response is, the word was celebrate. So we we make it really grim. We create a life that has <laughs> really intense. So as a way to close, we'll just take the last few moments, if you will, to come kind of come into a quietness. Close your eyes. And feel fresh in this moment what's true for you. Whatever the state of your heart is right now. And listen in, listen a little more deeply and sense what it is, whatever intention you feel is alive in you as you take your next steps in your life. What do you want to remember? What is it that you really want to remember? You might turn that into some sort of a a wish for yourself, a prayer for yourself. To feel all of us gathered here in some way having an intention to wake up our hearts, our caring, and the field that creates. You can feel into the field some. And sense it as a really boundless, edgeless field. And sense how this field, this field of loving presence, of caring, includes all beings that we can feel the earth, our mother, in our lap. This is our larger belonging in some way. Tenderness for this whole web, this living web of life, and all beings. I'll share final words, a prayer that I really love from Diane Ackerman. It's a school prayer. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, 
I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the uttermost night and the male and female and the plants bursting with seed, the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. Taking a few full breaths and opening your eyes. So we are friends. We do belong. I'm so grateful you chose to do this. I wouldn't get to do it unless you chose to come. You know, so. Um, but there's something that always wakes up in me through it, and I'm aware that you never know what you're signing up for. So, and that there were places that may have felt like, whoa, I don't want to go there. And I want to thank you for being here, for taking the exquisite risk and um, hope to cross paths again. So deep, deep bound. Thanks to Spirit Rock for hosting us. Blessings. Thank you. So I have um, an announcement, which is see you folks. Make sure you sign out so you get what you need and drive safely and blessings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.